Hello and welcome, or welcome back. This is The Speakeasy, the virtual audio space where readers and writers gather. And I'm your host, Hoffer Koopen. As with every episode, I'll be joined by a guest co-host, and together we'll spend some time with another wonderful member from the writing community. Of course, we'll chat about their novel, what they've got in the works, and we'll allow ourselves to explore wherever the conversation takes us. Hearing from the authors themselves is a great way for us to introduce them to you, our listening audience. As always, you never know when you might just discover a new book, a new author, or find out something about the writing and publishing industries you may not have known. It's my pleasure today to welcome back my very first guest, who then co-hosted the next episode, and it's wonderful having her join us again. She is a British poet now living in southern Germany with her family, and delightfully describes herself as an accidental novelist. Author of several works, including the dragon fantasy series The Sovereigns, several volumes of poetry, the science fiction novella series The Wostin Chronicles, and the soon-to-be-released gothic horror novel The Black Cat Bookshop. Please help give a warm welcome to Erin McConnell. Hi there, Erin. Welcome back to the show. It's really lovely to have you back. It's been, uh, been ages since the spring. It has. It's lovely to be here, so thank you very much for inviting me. I'm glad, I'm glad. Um, you have been on a tear um, constantly through this whole period of time. Can you give us a little bit of a catch-up and what have you been up to? Um, I've been I've been mostly just trying to get a stock of work up, uh, but I keep I keep switching genres because I'm a complete fool. Um, so obviously I'm writing poetry, and <laughs> I've wrote I've wrote the Sunset Sovereign, which is dystopian dragon fiction fantasy, and I've been writing a dystopian sci-fi novella series set in Woston, which I'm almost about to finish. And mm. is almost going to be it's going to be written next week. Is it part um, five? Is the last one? Pilgrim's the last one, number Pilgrim, four. Right. Oh, for number Pilgrim's four. The last okay. One. And then that's it. Then we're done. No more. No more wasting. So I've been writing that, but I've also been writing a lot of horror. Yeah. Um, so I've written um, the Black Cat Bookshop, which is out next year. Very exciting, it's gothic horror about nice. a sentient and feral bookshop. And uh, <laughs> and I'm also I've just spent. I'm just literally finishing a dual point of view, dual time um, ghost story, um, where we're looking at the ghost, which is the woman in white, right. um, a very tragic figure in myth. But we're looking at who the person is that became the woman in white. Mm. And we're also looking at what she is as the ghost, as the person who's terrorizing people. So it's that sort of looking at the monster element and seeing that the monster isn't actually the monster. It's, you know, we might be the monster more than them. So that's that one as well, which is just very exciting. It's very Lovely. exciting. So yeah. Lovely. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Um, you've uh, you've had a lot of plates in the air for sure. What, uh, <laughs> where are you at with uh, Sunset Sovereign? Are you in a, Trilogy? Are you quadrology? It's a, it's, no, it's definitely it's definitely a, it's a second set of four. It's going to be a sunset, obviously, then sunrise, then day, then night. Night mm-hmm. ends um, because obviously night's time and space, so it has to be night at the very end. That's the the one that's going to be the big one. Mm-hmm. I am going to be starting sunrise soon. I'm going back into fantasy writing fantasy now. I'm starting with um, from next year. I'm starting with a 
um, female bluebeard necromancer story, so I'm going into the dark fantasy. Mm. Then I'm hitting sunrise because it's that sort of same aesthetic, the whole really darkness. And then I'm from, I'm going to stay in fairy tale retellings, very very dark fairy tale retellings for a little while. I'm doing a um, retelling of Princess and the Pea, which is very dark fantasy. Um, I think that's called Octavia of, of Shadowfan at the moment. That's a working title. It's a terrible title, but it just does. And then I'm going to be doing a post-apoc dystopian Peter Pan retelling called Rebel Skies. And that's very, wow. very excited about that. Very, very. But I'll sort of put it at the very end because I'm being a good woman and I'm going to write all of the stuff I actually have to write. I just keep mind on myself. It's like post-apoc dystopian Peter Pan. Just eyes on the prize. I like I like the uh, working title for it, for sure. Rebel Skies, yeah, yeah. I think I'm going to keep that. It just it just feels right. It feels mm -hmm. very, very right. That one is going to be very exciting. It's a sort of dual world. Um, Wendy is in this very post-pop world and children are disappearing into Neverland. But Neverland is going much the same way as her world is. So she goes in to save that world, as does Captain Hook, who in this one is going to be a very morally grey anti-hero who ends up joining the Resistance to help Peter Pan and the Lost Boys. That's the general idea. I don't know what I'm doing with it. I know there's going to be airships. I know there's going to be lots of guns, but apart from that, I don't really know. That's great. <laughs> it sounds like there's definitely a lot of lattice work already built up in terms of the structure of what you've just been telling me. So that's really cool that you've got yeah. so many pieces already kind of coming together. Yeah, yeah, I do that. I basically work on a very, a very, very basic plot. I do a mood board. I have a rough idea about who the characters look like, and then I just shelve it and let it marinate until mm -hmm. I get there and by the time I get there the voices are already like chattering away during the waiting and you know waiting in the, in the queue it tends to work and then it goes very quickly to the finish nice oh. well it's it's kind of neat that you were uh, mentioning the dystopian kind of fantasy world etc that you're uh that you're talking about doing some more work in um our next guest is um someone that has been on the show already, which is kind of a, a little back, back ass words approach that I've had the last little while. Um, but she has also uh, written a dystopian romance novel and so much more. Um, so I'm excited to have her back on the show. If you happen to catch the last episode, our first all Canadian show, You'd have heard me say that, although our connections as writers and readers often rely on the virtual world, sometimes magic happens. I was in Calgary, Alberta this summer and had the good fortune to meet up with Stephanie in real life. We had lunch together with another wonderful author and new friend of ours and had the most brilliant, albeit far too short, time together. Stephanie previously taught high school arts and inclusive education and graduated with honors from Sheridan College's Music Theatre Performance Program and got her BFA and BED in Secondary Fine Arts from the University of Calgary. She's published two short story collections, the first called You Know What I Think? and just recently the one titled You Didn't Have To and in between those released her debut novel We Call Her Rose. When she isn't busy writing, she enjoys painting, hiking, and spending time with her husband and their pug, and watching documentaries on Netflix. Apparently, not just about David Beckham. Please help me to welcome Stephanie Barnfather. Hi, Steph. Hi. Hi Steph. Hello. How are you? 
Um, good. I have my nice deep voice. Uh, a little under the weather, but it's all good. <laughs> good, good. You're, yeah. you're feeling well enough to join us. I'm glad. Absolutely. Yep. It, uh, even though it was uh, last month, we had John as yep. a guest co-host. And again, thank you for jumping into the role to uh, help us introduce Craig Turlson on the show. Yep. Um, but gosh, it feels like forever since you were on. And I know it's only been a month, but yeah. uh, wow, busy time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. A lot happens sometimes in a, like in a wave, right? Like you have mm -hmm. this calm and then it's like, <laughs> so, yeah, it's been, been a busy, I feel like it's like, yeah, five, six weeks. I'm, I think to me, maybe that's not right. Maybe it's only been four, but like, yeah, it's still been not that long. Yeah. No, I know. Yeah. yeah. So uh, you've been, uh, well, again, give us a, uh, give us a taste of what you have been up to. I know you've been super busy. You've had a lot of projects in the air. Yeah. Um, I, I, I wish I could write more. That's always where I wish I could be is, is writing, writing, writing. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm working in the pace that is what's happening. So and it's, it's, you know, when I sit down, I'm writing. So great. <laughs> um, uh, right now I'm working on my next novel and I love it. I'm obsessed with it. Again, I wish all I could do is sit and be in that world right now. Um, but I'm about 40 K in I had to pause for two weeks, not had to, I made the choice to pause to go focus on the other books that need some love and attention mm -hmm. and marketing. And, um, and I've been really lucky in that I've made some great contacts locally. Um, and I've gotten all of them stocked at multiple places and one of the stores sold out, which was wild wow. and like had to do a second like order, which I'm so thrilled about. And I That's really wonderful. hope people like it. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so I'm just like navigating all the like business side of that stuff and like Indigo chapters is stocking locally. So if you're in Calgary, go to Indigo chapters. Cause that's all very wild as well. Just, uh, being in those huge places and there's my little book in the corner and I'm pulling out the the spine so they stand out so people can grab them but um yeah so so for two weeks I've been doing that and making sure I've got all my ducks lined up I've also really tried to um simplify and uh clarify what my business agenda is next year so Barnfather Books has been this like idea that's been marinating like you say, for a while. And I've been kind of testing some stuff, pulling some strings for the last 10 months. And I'm really excited about where it's going to go. Um, and again, I'm just really um, making it simpler, but uh, hopefully being able to reach readers more directly through my website and my socials and stuff like that. So that it's a very like focused and intentional place to get my information out. Um, uh, as directly as possible to people. So, um, yeah, so I'm pretty, pretty stoked about that. Uh, but then, yeah, in terms of writing, I have, I don't know if I could say this, I have a secret pub releasing in a, I can't say when soon. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, uh, I'm doing this thing called rapid release flash, flash fictions where for fun out of nowhere, like, um, like, you know, like pop-up stores, Mm -hmm. And like, yeah, so it's like a pop-up book <laughs> and you find out on the day, uh, boom, it's released. Ah! 
And uh, it's only marketed for like six days. And then I just let it sit on and do its thing. Um, but I did one for Halloween. It was super fun. And I got some really great responses. Uh, so they're like, yeah, Joshua, the ghost story. Uh, it's seasonal. I try to make it Canadian. I try to have it be separate from my other books. Um, and not always. Uh, but I try to include different styles, different um, ideas. Um, and, uh, so yeah, I want, I have one of those coming out soon. Can't say when, can't say which season, <laughs> but it's coming. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, and those are fun. So those keep me, those keep me like, you know, I can produce those in two weeks. I, I write a lot. And so what I do is I go through my back catalog or whatever. No, it's not back catalog, but my works in progress. Mm -hmm. I tidy them up, my short stories. Um, and then I see, Ooh, does this work in this potential collection? And then I send it out and uh, do all the art. And thank goodness I have 8,000 photos of Marissa Rogovine, my book cover model, who is, I just use for my covers. And she's so, like, we have million, I have so many photos of her in various stages from the photo shoots we did right. a year ago, two years yeah. ago. So uh, she's she's gone through all my covers. So it's nice. I can pull that together pretty fast and get the audiobook done because they're short. They're under 50 pages. And mm -hmm. um yeah, they're just fun. They're really fun to do. They're a nice little side project. So I've been doing that creative thing in the last two weeks too. But um, big picture, got my novel and love it. And uh, I can tentatively say it's coming out in 2024. <laughs> uh, hopefully May, probably September, but um, um, we'll see. We'll see. It's, 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 I'm very, very happy with the first half. Um, so it might be come together quicker than I think. That's yeah. fabulous. Yeah. So is it in the same world as Rose? Yeah. So it is actually a prequel to Rose. Okay. Uh, yeah. And I can't, I'm not going to say too much about it, but um, after Rose, I got a lot of feedback about a couple side characters and people were like, I want to know more about this person. And uh, I wasn't originally going to write a whole novel about these side characters. I was going to, the third novel I'm releasing in 2025 is um, a very interesting project where uh, I can't really talk about it, <laughs> actually. So I'm not going to, but it's an interesting project. But that was going to be the creative vehicle to sort of expand on some of the characters I've brought into We Call Her Rose and then this other novel. Um, but, you know, sometimes readers say things and you're like, oh, that actually is a really interesting perspective. And I think I'm going to explore that more because that seems really fun. So I basically incorporated some of the side characters from We Call Her Rose, or supporting characters, and um, fleshed them out. Uh, but the novel has two brand new protagonists. It's a romance, but it's a different type of romance. It's a tragedy. I can totally say that. Um, it's a romantic tragedy uh, in a dystopian world. Um, and it's giving a lot of information uh, to set up. Like, like, how did the world in We Call Her Rose come to be? There's a lot of information in this one that kind of sheds some light on that and some backstory a little bit. But, yeah. Very exciting. That's yeah. wonderful. It's in, a, it's in a tree world. I can yeah. say that, too. Tree world. Lots of trees. Yes. I'm reading a lot of tree stuff, watching a lot of tree <laughs> documentaries. Lots of insects. It's a lot of insect work right now. So, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I want to read that. Yeah, I need to read that. <laughs> Well I'll, well, I'll let you know. It'll it'll come out. So yeah, yeah, great. <laughs> yeah. What uh, what goes into sort of the thinking process 
for writing a like a prequel notion once a once a world is established in the first novel for example and writers go back and they create a prequel world how does I guess what's the thinking around keeping interest? Because in a sense, the the new place, the original novel has sort of established the environment and the people and the engagement. How do, I, I, I wanna say we, but I haven't done it yet. How do we as writers kind of go backwards in time? Because I keep thinking linearly, uh, but how do you go back in time? Whoops. and. Uh, and kind of hook someone into, well, here's how all of this came to be without losing interest because they've already seen the current novel type of thing. Do you know what I mean? For me, I go back to a point prior to, oh, I can't, I gotta be careful. Uh, <laughs> but be careful what I say. No, it's okay. <laughs> prior to a very, very bad thing happening. Mm -hmm. So there, like, cause in, in We Call Her Rose, it mentions, I think I can say this. I say it in so many of my stories. There, oh, no, I can't. Sorry. No. Uh, there's yeah, a, don't, there's don't some, yeah, I know I can't. Sorry. There's some bad stuff that happens that happens before we call her Rose. So for me, the interest is I'm going to go back even before that bad stuff okay. that you know is coming because I'm very clear about dates. And I, oh my gosh, I talk about years all the time. I'm like, year, year, all my shorts, not all of them, but like a lot of the short stories mm -hmm. that expand on, again, other things, I'm always grounded in the year. So like, if, I think the second you get to like page four of my next novel, you're gonna be like, oh, I know when this is. <laughs> uh oh, the bad thing's coming. So that's yeah. intentional. So I yeah. hope that that's for me anyway. What the what the hook is is that, right. and even if you haven't went, read the other stuff, then it's gonna be a surprise. So mm -hmm. hey, mm -hmm. but for me, I try to be very clear that you know that thing I talked about a whole bunch and kind of like was really scary and they reference all the time. Oh, look, <laughs> this is, it's coming up. <laughs> so right. hopefully people are like, I want to know now with these new characters, what are they going to do? Like, are they going to survive? Are they going to, what, how, what, what's going to happen? What's the fallout? I also um, have, uh, um, uh, oh my gosh, what's the word? Genetic ties. So mm. like, there's a lot of allusions to like, oh, this is the parent of this person or the aunt of this person. Mm -hmm. Or again, these family members I reference and we call her Rose. Oh, that's who they are. But again, so I'm hoping that that's a hook that people are like, oh, cool. Let's learn more about this because right. that actually might shed some light on the personality types of Rose and the other people, how they developed, why. Um, that's okay. my approach. I don't know, Aaron, like, what do you, <laughs> that's, what do you, what do you do when you? I haven't done one, oh, actually. Oh. I mean, I've done the non-consecutive stories in Woston, um, and I know roughly where they all fit in together, but you wouldn't necessarily know. Perhaps, well, perhaps with a pilgrim you would. Um, but you, it, it's a lot like, well, I think it's a lot like writing fiction, fan fiction of your own story, because you have to go back and go, hang on, where did where did I put the thing here? What's the name of... And you're always saying, oh, yeah, I've got to fit that in and make sure I don't change that because I can't tell. And then also, like you say, you can't give away too much because it's like, well, what about if I've solved this? I can't then... Oh, and it, yeah, it's a lot like... Yeah, it's like fan fiction, but you're still trying to keep stuff under wraps, not let any too much be said, I think, yeah. And I always I think, just... Yeah, oh, it's like no. finding a voice, finding, keeping a voice different as well. I find that really hard. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I find to, I'm finding it helpful to distract with other things, like make other problems, you know, that are the dominant problem. So mm -hmm. 
the readers are like, Ooh, that's a really big deal. And it's not actually, <laughs> but you don't know that. <laughs> so like, yeah, the problem's coming. And then like, so that's that subplot piece, which I think can be helpful is like having people in the story, like elude to things mm -hmm. that keeps the hook. So like, if while you, the writer are like, I know where I'm at, I know where this story is. I know what's coming, but I'm not, but I'm going to distract you right with this bigger problem, which actually isn't that big a problem, but the character's, think it's a problem mm -hmm. so plot wise that has been and you can't let them know too much just because you know as an yeah. author you can't let the characters know because they can't see the future yeah 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 and in doing so can't let the readers know because then they by revealing too much you lose that momentum you lose the steam yeah yeah and it's fun too because then you get that moment where it all comes together and you're like oh that's why these things, these things, these references were made or mm -hmm. these pieces that didn't seem that important actually are the most important. And that's always fun. You know, as yeah. a reader, that's a fun moment too when you're like, oh, cool. <laughs> right? yeah, absolutely. Oh, I get it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that aha moment of, oh, they're, the, the, the author is really in control here. <laughs> that's, that's always comforting when you know an author has a design and they have been leading you towards that design. Um, I always like reading authors where you're like, I trust you. I know what you're doing. I know you're going to take me somewhere good. And I think that's a mechanism that, um, that like that distraction piece, right. Or versus like what I know versus what I'm telling. Um, but like, like, yeah, alluding to those things kind of helps build trust with readers. And I think trust is actually, I'm very on this trust thing right now. I've been reading a lot of stuff about how important it is that readers trust authors, um, because that's how you build loyalty. That's how you get people reading. Oh, what's the prequel? What's the next one? What's the, and if you are jumping around timelines, right? Doesn't matter. Cause you know, when the reader knows the author knows what they're doing and that the author is confident, you know, it's just a fun trip you get to take as a reader and enjoy. Yeah. I wonder though, as readers uh, who aren't as well-versed in that notion of trusting the author like, I don't know if it's that conscious sometimes, but just knowing that as you're reading through the work, it's keeping you in, interested and engaged to keep knowing and keep seeing more of the puzzle, even though the puzzle pieces don't necessarily fit together yet, but you're seeing more things revealed that helps create a bigger picture of the story. I, I like that, but it doesn't always, for me as a reader, it doesn't always translate to, oh, they know what they're doing. I don't really mm. think about that, but I do yeah. notice when they don't know what they're doing <laughs> because things break down really quickly and, and then you lose engagement and then yeah. you put the book down, so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting too. When do you, when do you reveal certain things? Like if you reveal certain things too late, you might not, capture or keep interest long enough right it's almost like as an author especially if you're writing a novel you kind of have to prove that you know what you're doing really quickly and then maintain that you know like I've I mean there's a lot of different I read a whole book beginning to end always because and you know sometimes you're you know the big reveal or the proof of the author's intention doesn't become clear until the end of the book, like the last chapter. And then you're like, oh, I'm so glad I read to the end. <laughs> that was, that's great. But if you're a person that is reading a lot, um, and you know, and maybe, or maybe you, you know, you, you don't finish things sometimes, 
um, in order to avoid that, yeah, as an author, you may have to find ways of pretty early on, not only introducing, um, like revealing certain things, but proving that you are, that it's justified. You know what I mean? Like um, there's dropping. Re there's reason to carry on to the end. In other words. Yeah. Yeah. And that everything is going to be resolved. Mm -hmm. Like, it's almost like you work in like chunks of here's a little bit and then I'm going to resolve a little bit now. Oh, good. And then, oh, now I'm going to introduce some new stuff, resolve a little bit more, but have some threads continue. And then keep kind of doing that. Um, like almost like you're getting people to ask why, and then you're telling them and then another why, and then you're telling them and then, you know, throughout. Um, and I think that could be a very good way of keeping engagement um, and starting that early versus sort of saying to people, Hey, I, I, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> read, read this 800 page book and you'll, and you'll see it for yourself. Um, not that, you know, like I, I, I'll do it, but not everybody wants to read 790 pages before they, they uh, realize that, oh, okay. Yeah. there's a design here. <laughs> you know? or, or they feel like they've gotten to the reward at the very end. Sometimes yeah. it's a long way to hold somebody before yeah. you give them something. I think if you're established, you can do it though. Like if you have a canon of like 80 books, you know, and you want to play around, that might be really fun later, you know, with when you have a giant canon to be like, how, how loyal are people? <laughs> like, do, do, have I done the work with my other novels that people will wait for this long to, uh, to get the payout, to get that moment? And would it be satisfying or would it be like, how big would that payout have to be? in order for people to make it worth that much reading, you know, like, I don't know. It's an interesting sort of artistic conundrum. That's a, that's later. <laughs> it's, a, it's a later thing, <laughs> but yeah, I think it could be possible if you, if you had done the work and people, you had a, a, a lot of consistent evidence that you were, you know, yeah. 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 You I, know think how right. I think if, you, if you've got a lot of books, it doesn't matter if, they, if your readers don't like one. They'll know that they'll probably like the next one. It's not a problem. But if you've only written one or two and they don't like one, they're not going to try more. Why would they? No. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot. There's a lot of pressure to prove oneself early in order to With allow. With the first book, yeah. which is always going to be your worst book. Yeah. Right. Because yeah. your experience gets you better along the way. Hopefully, yeah. that's the plan. But yeah. I think early on, it's important to to develop that readership interest so that keep people will provide you that forgiveness say you know that was good it wasn't great but let's see what comes next um i think they say that in the movies too you're only as good as your last movie yeah. so there's a lot of pressure out there because there's so much competition um what also, uh, yeah, no go ahead oh, i was gonna say yeah there's a lot of competition but like i like to think of it more you're this is so lame, but you're competing with yourself. <laughs> like, you know, like really like, you know, you're, you, there are a lot of writers and you're vying for readership. Right. And, but at the same time, you know, if, if you keep doing the work, if you keep pursuing more artistic fulfillment, um, greater skills, um, you know, where you're enjoying it and you know you're getting better and you know that you, the work continues to be more fulfilling on your end as an author and you just keep doing it. I genuinely believe that even if people take a break or pause and read a thousand other books and come back, if you're still doing the work and you're still there and, you know, people will come back to you. The only way people can't read your books is if you don't write books. 
you know, it's I'll, I'll quote the good old Canadian Wayne Gretzky, you know, you miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take, you know, you yeah. will lose all the readers that are out there potentially waiting for you if you don't continue to write. Um, and I mean, I I've read authors too. Oh gosh where the beginning of their canon is phenomenal. And then they, you can tell they're going through something. <laughs> like in the middle, you're like, uh-oh, what's, what's happening? And then the end is really, really like, oh, okay, well, they're back. But it's always very interesting too, to see authors who span like 60 years in their writing career. You can tell there's like a, something happens between 1942 and 1951. <laughs> and, and then, oh, okay, like, you know, so again, you as an, you have to accept where you're at as an author. And if you just keep trying, if you keep working the craft, if you keep doing what you're doing, um, like, you know, like people will find you, they'll, they'll, they'll come back. It, I know there's a lot of pressure, but I still think if you have the ability to write, if you can write and want to write in the inclination, um, and you keep doing it, like, they'll come, they'll find you, <laughs> you'll be found, just keep yelling <laughs> and, and doing the work. And, uh, and I think that loyalty piece is, and that trust has to, it, it can, it's, um, we don't get to control how that operates on our end as authors, you know, like trust can happen immediately with some readers. Trust might take a decade to develop. Um, trust could come and go. Right. And I think, again, our job is to keep providing the best quality story we can um, and upgrading as we go and really believing that our work is strong enough and good enough and interesting enough that when people want it or when they're looking, we have things there for them. And uh, oh, that's my my thought on it, because I, I get very like overwhelmed with the whole absolutism with this industry. Right. Like you get a s small window to be successful. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. That's <laughs> the idea. Oh, if, if you don't, if you, if you launch, if you don't, if you don't get a right launch, you're done. It doesn't yeah. follow. It doesn't follow. So my dystopian Western series is terrible on launch. It's awful, but it keeps going and people find it and they go, oh my God, this is amazing. And then they fly through. I saw your story early on. And I was looking at it thinking, which one is it? Which one and is the guard? You're reading the guard. Ford is horrible. <laughs> they all are. They're all morally great, but it's a terrible on launch. It's terrible, but it just chugs along and people are reading it and they go, I like that. And then they go grab something else. And it's like, great. It doesn't always follow. It doesn't have to be that one it's not absolute you just put them out there yeah. and you just see what happens and speaking about you i bought your book eight months ago <laughs> you know like 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 what so long ago and i just read it this morning i loved it by the way this is so good um i'm really I, I didn't know you had more so i'm like okay good i'm gonna go Three, yeah, i'm gonna go more. get this um yeah Great. dust collector yeah. is about darius um very isolated man who lives out in the desert king of the mine mm. is about the mine and the people <laughs> in the mine and it's very dark very, very yeah. dark. It's got hallucinogenic Mayan moss and all sorts. And Pilgrim's the last one that I'm writing, which is a lot more like a prison break. They've got a break. They're going into the prison. That one's going to oh. be. That's, I love, I'm very excited about it. I love the premise of yours. Like, sorry, now I'm going to talk about your stuff, but like, oh my gosh, like the concept of the the guards protecting the prisoners. Yes, they don't need to lock doors. Yeah, right. But, but like, Normally, you know, you're protecting the world from the prisoners, but this is the prisoners from the world. I love that. Like, it's so, it's so messed up and great, really great. Like, like very, and a really enjoyable read and, and yeah. So, but, but look at that again, like you wrote, you wrote that. I bought it eight months ago and I'm just reading it today so like, again. And now I'm like, oh, good more. You know, it's not like you're like, oh, Stephanie Barnfather bought my book eight months ago. And she didn't read it and review it. I'm not going to write anymore. Like, you know, like it's like, yeah, you, you just got to keep going. Yeah, you just got to keep going. It's all right. 
Woesten is a real labour of love. It really is. Yeah. Everything in it. And Woesten actually is, is Afrikaans for desert, which is why it's called Woesten. Um, and it's complete labour of love. It's not ever going to be commercially successful. It's just not. It's not. Mm. It, it's, yeah. People love it. Yeah. It's never going to make me thousands. It doesn't matter. I really love writing it. And yeah. I'm going to finish it and I'm going to put it away. And it'll be like, I, that, I, could, I achieved that. And that's, that's good enough. But people read it and they just go, do you know what? That's fantastic. I Oh, I've thought so much about the ideas about people about what i would do to survive about what it's like to be institutionalized i'm like great that's what i wrote mm -hmm. it for and it doesn't yeah. matter it'd be nice if it makes his money back well, you know otherwise it's fine. that's good that's gonna be your b-side canon you know yeah. like for the diehard fans that like you know you have your commercial success but then the really true loyal ones yeah. are like oh you gotta find you gotta find aaron's talk about Royston. The, the, yeah. the hipsters the hipsters are like we yeah. talking about black cat bookshop 72 hours. Us. Yeah. What, I yeah. don't care. Have you talked about roasting? I swear, <laughs> right now, then you understand. <laughs> yes. uh, yeah. I think ultimately, it this really underlines the fact that we have to write for ourselves. You know, you have to write what you love and not trying to guess what's out there, what's interesting, what's going to keep a readership, um, because you'll your work will find a readership. And that's that's the key. Those are the those are the people that you're writing for. Yeah, it's weird you say that though, because I'm not <laughs> sure about that. <laughs> that sounds terrible. Like I agree, you got to write some things that are 100 percent for you, and yeah. that and that's going to be your little indulgence. But I still I don't know yet. I I mean about the whole like like I read a lot of like the bestsellers, and I I really try to look at what the sort of like publishing industry is saying is the standard, just for interest and re research sake, right? And I, I I talk to a lot of people, and I read a lot of people, and I talk to like bookstore owners and publishers and stuff, and I understand from a business perspective how there is um there is an ideology and sort of a nebulous sort of orb of content qualifiers that push the mainstream development and publishing um I don't want to call it monster but you know like that mm -hmm. that sort of like tone or standard that becomes more widespread and I don't think there's necessarily any harm of having an awareness of that and maybe even allowing that to color a little bit or infuse your writing sometimes it might happen you know, or even like as a compromise, you know, even for me, like writing, we call her rose, like I am dystopian all the way. No one's reading dystopian right now because everyone's like, oh, the world is hell. But like, I love dystopian because I love the politics and the nuance and the power struggles. And I think it's so fun, but, but romance is hot. So I was like, all right, like, can I blend knowing that and I, and in doing so, in reading a bunch of mainstream romance, I was like, oh, this is so great and fun. So it built my artistry and it grew something and it challenged me, like looking at what the popular stuff is, allowed me to grow, but, and allowed me some wiggle room too, of being like, hey, I'm writing dystopian, you can't stop me, because I'm obsessed, but let's see if we can infuse like like romanticy and all those sort of sort of subgenres that are really developing and i think that's just smart because then my heart's in the project and i'm learning and growing with a new genre and i'm still sort of walking that line of big popular i'm air quoting big popularity stuff right so like again like i don't know if there's like a hard and fast rule you know like write what you love but maybe there's there needs to be space for 
understanding the realities of the industry in which we operate, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. No, yeah. I, I, uh, I agree with you in that regard, for sure. I think part of what I'm saying is that um, life colors what we encounter, <clears throat> what we encounter. So a lot of what we write for ourselves that we love, I think, can't help but be colored by what's going on. Because those are the kind of novels that we encounter and delve into as readers ourselves. And I think inherently that's going to percolate and show up. How much or how little depends on what we want to do. But I think it's just natural process. As a follow-up to to that aspect, um, I have a bunch of thoughts in my head about um, process, but I'm wondering now, I know that Aaron's a a pantser. (laughs) Yeah. Remind me again, uh, Steph, are you are you uh, more of a plotter? Oh, um, <laughs> that was a that was a really gross sound. Sorry. Um, I it depends. So I'd say I'm a I get like an idea for my short stories, but I'm definitely a pantser for short stories. Okay. Um, but with the novels, like if yeah, I'm I'm a plotter, but I leave a lot of space for it to do what it wants. Um, and I kind of check in. You know, like, so I do a very loose outline for both of these novels. I've done, I know what my theme is mm-hmm. and I know that, like, it's funny with short stories, I, I let it do what it wants and I determine that stuff after and clarify it in the revision and editing process. But like, no, when I was writing, like, I, I mean, I didn't know how the heck I was going to write a romance and a dystopian together. So I decided the dominant uh, theme had to be romantic. Um, and so that's why I chose it and plotted the... I did the hero's journey plot structure because that's the dystopian. I was like, okay, um, which actually blends great for romance FYI. So if there's any romance writers out there, like use hero's journey because it's pretty fun. Um, it seems to and be then, pretty prevalent in so much of what we see. Yeah, it's the it's the, it's really fun. Like you get the twists, you get the stakes, you get the everyone's kind of worked in. So um, mostly though with short stories, I do if I do play with format, if I am plotting a little because sometimes I do. Um, I like to test the other ones like, oh, and my next novel is not dystopian or not uh, Heroes Journey at all. I like took the five act story structure and then like condensed it to four and like switched some things around. So like I just invented my own plot format, which I don't know who's been anyway. But um, but yeah, so I do a general plotting. I know who the characters are for sure. And I know what the big I know what their internal like I know what the I know what the protagonist's um, main conflict is within her, him, themselves. Uh, Then I know what the relationship conflict is. And then I know what the world conflict is. And then after that, I just let them do their thing. And I revise as I go and I adapt the plotting as I go. But so um, it's kind of both, but I I really try to have some sort of structure that I follow just for my own sanity. Cause there's just so many balls in the air with a novel that if, I feel like if I don't, I tried. I when I wrote my first series, like my first two books, it was all pantsing. And when I went back, I was like, "Oh my god, what's happening? This is this is not okay." And I ended up like taking one novel and turning it into two, and then I cut like twenty thousand words in the second one, and now it's just like can't even look at it. So I'm gonna come back to it next year. But like, um, <laughs> but, like it was a fun exercise. But I was like, I'm never doing that again with a novel. So, um, but it is really it is fun to pants with the short stories for sure. It's mm-hmm. a very fun, yeah, yeah. 
and Aaron, with your with your work, you've been getting more into planning things out. Yeah, I've had to. I've had. I have to. I have to. I mean, obviously, with the series with with sovereigns, I have to because mm -hmm. I know roughly what's going to happen, but I have to keep having to fit in what's going on where, who is doing what. So I am having to actually just grow up and, and do it properly. Uh, <laughs> uh, but it's actually quicker. Um, much as I hate to say that because I love pantsing the thing about pantsing is that things change because the characters do stuff that is actually better than what you thought about in the first place and it's it just comes out much more organically it's mm -hmm. just incredible but it can go off into the ether somewhere you don't know what's going on you, 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 you're losing it you lose the plot of where you're going literally I suppose in that sense but so yeah I've had to do it I've had to start doing plotting taking on a collaboration with uh with uh, romance writers, um, mm. it's a group, and they were, we're all doing a fairy tale retelling of a romance. And this is completely new to me because I do not write romance. I have written um, two uh, my slushy Valentines, which are a collaboration for found fiction. So, but I've I've never been one for doing the the romance, and I thought I'm going to try it. I'm going to do it. So now I actually have to do it. I had to sit down and look at the beats and go, which one am I going to use? Which story? Who am I doing? What's the answer? What are they? What? How do they work together? And so it's been quite interesting to actually sit down and and do a loose plot, and, and then I think, oh, I can see why it works pretty well actually, <laughs> because you can put chapters, you put your names in the chapters, just they kiss or something, and it's like, oh. Okay, let us ask where I'm up to. And actually, actually, yeah, it actually works really well. <laughs> so I probably have to admit that I'm wrong and start planning more. I have a, I do the same thing. I labeled, I have a chapter coming up in a couple of weeks I'm going to write. And it's like a bunch of fucked up shit happens. That's literally the, the chapter <laughs> title. Uh, this is when the shit goes down. Great. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, if nothing else, that, that helps kind of give you a place marker, I think, as opposed to swimming through all the ideas all at once and not knowing which one to grab onto. Um, I, Cause I'm definitely a pantser, um, but I'm seeing that I'm using some plotting elements too, because there's a, there's a thread, there's a trail that I know that I'm wanting to follow. So in a sense for me, I, I'm going to hang on to the idea that that's partially a plot of sorts. Uh, and then everything else has been very organic. Um, again, still working to get it, out of my head and onto the page, but I, at least I think that's how the process is coming coming together. But uh, yeah, no, it's always interesting. And I thought I'd mention for those listening who may not be uh, like up, up on the, the lexicon between pantsing and plotting, plotting obviously, you know, structuring a little bit better the flow of the story and where things go and pantsing, of course, flying by the seat of our pants and letting the story tell itself. Um, which is a joyous thing to do, I think, because of the fact that it's it's so organic. Where um, where do things lead for you when you are? I know you said Stephanie about having a sense of who all the people are. How does that come together for you? Is it something you have to dwell upon for a while to where the story is kind of flowing and then you plug in characters or do they start out first how does that kind of work for you uh that's a really good question again I think it depends on the story um like I'll use we call her Rose as an example so we call her Rose was very weird because I was actually going to write something totally different and had a very different release plan 
Uh, this is again this is so cliche and i want to say like silly but like i had a dream <laughs> and, uh the, i dreamed the first chapter in incredible like vivid reality like bizarrely vivid the the mannequin it, and, and like why am i dreaming about this <laughs> like yeah. uh pat um and colin and i was i was rose but in the store and i was watching the three of them dress this mannequin in the student shop and it was dark out and it was scary outside. And I didn't want to, this is the dream. I did not want to go out there. And I'm watching these three guys and I was like, or not three, sorry, the, the mannequin and, and Colin and Pat. And uh, and I really had this like strong affection for Colin. I don't know. I, and I normally dream about things that either happen in real life or are very standardly symbolic. Like last night I had a dream about my teeth falling out, you know, and I dream about driving because these are very common things that when you that relate very clearly to you know our psyche and uh, the things going on the high school thing oh when I was a teacher I was always in my grade 12 high school always but um but this was weird because it was so outside of the norm and it wasn't related to anything and I woke up and I was so intrigued by who are these, who are these gentlemen <laughs> dressing a mannequin and uh why did I like this guy and then the dream ended actually with me running away um, and the guy yelling, what's your name? And me saying, I'm not going to tell you that. And then, so waking up, I was like, I wonder if I can write a book because I really want to write this out, this first scene where they don't know her name until the very last chapter. And I did it. <laughs> I was like, wow. Yeah. So it was like, so, so the characters just appeared to me yeah. and you know, I had some, I, I had things going on and it was a struggle. Like, I, I don't know if I would ever want to write a book like that again, because trying to make the, <laughs> trying to reconcile the beginning with the end was very difficult um, and took a lot of work and a lot of like having to be very smart and objective, but also getting into it. Um, and understand why this was an important opening sequence to tell, why, what had to come from this. But it was really fun and I enjoyed it. Um, but with other, like when I wrote my first book, The Crown series, oh, the characters are all alive. It was character driven. And the world developed from my own idealistic idea of what I wish the world would look like. Uh, and then, uh, you know, and I, nobody knows anything about this. I've had three people read this series uh, and then they are mad because they're like, can you release it? I'm like, no, it needs a lot more work. Um, but it's coming out later. Uh, but yeah, it started with the people. So it started with a cast and it's, and I know where they're going and I know what they want and I know what's going to happen to them. Um, short stories tends to be an idea and the character's, develop from that um i i think you know it it really depends like um yeah short stories tend to be an idea um sometimes i just sit down and i'm like i don't know let's see what happens um and then they develop uh when i wrote my first book of short stories i did a brainstorming thing where i did i set a timer for 10 minutes and i sat and I just wrote random sentences in a list about like, what if this weird thing happened? And I didn't judge it. I just did it for 10 minutes. And from that list, I developed the third. Well, I developed 10 of the stories that were in my first book. And then the others are kind of elsewhere, or dumped or gone other places. Um, but like literally the sentences were like, what if what if people lived in balloons? <laughs> and I was like, oh, that would be weird. Uh, what if kids uh, weren't allowed to talk to each other? Yeah, you know, like, um, what if, uh, and I don't want to give it away, but like, you know, what if, 
<laughs> what if there were monsters under blankets? But I substitute monsters with what's actually under the blankets, but the story never actually says what those are. And I leave that for the reader to fill in. But like, then the details, like for example, in Blankets, that short story, I, because I don't tell anybody what the monsters are, I make sure I try to use the rest of the details of the world and the characters to provide clues for that. So all of the names of the characters are some kind of breed of the monster. Um, all the references to cartoons and, and sort of like little things sprinkled throughout are references to what the beasts are. And I've had a couple people pick up on it, which is really fun. Like they'll message me and be like, oh my gosh, I figured out your code. And I'm like, yay. So, but I don't, it's not, it's never, I never explain it because it's just like a side thing for people to enjoy. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Like it's, it's really hard for me to sit here definitively and say like, this is my process and this is what happens. It's more like I get an idea and I'm like, that would be fun. And then I develop it. And then I use theme and character development and relationships and world and ideas and real life to inform each one. But it's all very random and disjointed based on this type of story, based on the idea I have. But it starts with a, I have to say to myself, this would be fun to do. And then the work happens and I, we're going to draw on all these other mechanisms to make that happen, but, um, or to make the idea come about or to turn it into a story. But um, I would, I don't know. <laughs> That's my process <laughs> when it comes to uh, starting off. <laughs> Sorry. That's very so, neat. It's always yeah. <laughs> so interesting just hearing how every writer kind of approaches <laughs> the work and allows the work to, to occur. I think that's part of it is giving permission for it to actually happen. Um, and I remember that with your stuff, Erin, I mean, you approach mm -hmm. things kind of similarly, don't you? You have a lot of, you have a lot of stuff that just kind of erupts into being and then you just attack it and go and. Yeah, yeah, actually I was laughing stuff because <laughs> Sunset Sovereign started as a dream. <laughs> actually started the dream. And it, it became, yeah, yeah, so exactly. Yeah, it, it does. I mean, I don't, if I have a character, I have to find a picture of the character because obviously I'm a fantasy, I don't know what they look like. Um, so I know roughly what they are and I'll go through Pinterest and I stop and I go, that, that's, there they are, that's them, that's her. And then when I have the picture, I can just, I just, it's just left it. And then they start to come out and tell me who they are. Um, like in the latest one that's that's out next month, next yeah, God, next month's Black Cat Bookshop, one of the characters, Brandon, I didn't know anything about him. I just knew that he was deaf. Um, and then I found him. I found his picture. And my hair was standing on end, just thinking about it. My hair's, and then I, thought, I looked and I thought, you're a con artist. You've been in prison. And then it started to come. And he had this, he has a very, very strong voice. And he's really very funny, but he's very irreverent. He's very, um, he's very, he's also very institutionalized. He's got lots of strange ideas about how he wants to do things in the world, very moralistic, but not moralistic necessarily. Not, but it's like I had to get that face. And then he's they start to come out. But even then, I don't always know. I start writing them, I'm like, right, so who are you? And it's a bit like a first date. We're sort of, we're writing and I'm just like, is this okay? And then suddenly it, it clicks and then you just launch in with their stuff. And it's like, oh, there we go. That's who you are. And then the voice is there and it's fine. But yeah, it's a sort of slight process. I have to find a picture first. Otherwise I don't know what they are. Can and I ask, I actually wanted to ask you because I listened to the first podcast and yeah. love, yeah, with you. And I was like, oh, and then I was so excited and listening to all of them. 
Um, but when you mentioned that, it actually really changed how I approached writing because at the time I was being very um, uh, casual about including specific physical descriptors of characters yeah. because I was still operating under this thing where I was like, I think we can fill in the gaps and that's okay. But having you share that was actually really important um, to me as a writer. And I made sure that going forward, that there was at least like as quickly as I could, as quickly as it made sense in a book, that I included some kind of grounding physical descriptor for readers. And that was because of you. So thank you. <laughs> because, um, because, and I even talked about it. I've talked about it with other readers before where I'm like, and, and I'm like, you know, and I've said this, you know, I actually think it's really important because you don't always, we assume that we have a, a certain degree of imagination that fills in the blanks, but we don't assume the, the, the extent of that. And even this expanded my conversations with readers too, about things like um, physical landscapes and descriptions, you know, everyone's like, don't overwrite, don't overwrite. But I'm like, yeah, but you can't neglect certain things either. And just because it might be safer in some ways to allow people to fill in the blanks doesn't mean it's always the best practice if you want to be conscious and like of of a broad spectrum of readers that might read your text, right? So yeah, so yeah. To get into white space, if you're writing in white space, it's it just it throws people out. I mean, a lot of people do have, and they can fill in the de details, and that's absolutely fine. But also, then they're not looking at what your character's doing. They're, they're going, oh, look, and it's got this here, and I'm going to put a picture on the wall. And they're not following where you're going either, so they're, they're doing something else. Um, so, yeah, but it's, if they do too much white space, you're just like, I don't care about this character. Why do I need to care? Who are they? Need something. And for me, I, I always focus on the behavior and the physical actions of a character, because that, to me, is... Yeah. And that's, and that's the grounding aspect. Right. And I feel mm -hmm. like that's what connects people is the movement and the voice and the emotions, but that's not always the case, right? Like sometimes like, why can't we include a quick physical description and focus on the behavior and make that the dominant thing, you know, or why can't we use physical attributes as clues into what's going on? And I tried to do that. I did that a lot in rows of like characters have very specific physical attributes, um, in terms of their gestures or something that gives away their emotional state or gives away if they're lying <laughs> or gives away. Um, but but I think even, again, the physical can do that too. Why can't we broaden that and say, maybe there's a tell that a character has that when they flip their brown curly hair <laughs> or, or like, you know, smooth back their eyebrow, that could be informative. That could give insights to a character's mindset or psychology or behavior. So it opens up all these other doors from a creative perspective that again, allows you to have different mechanisms to hook readers, right? To keep people engaged, to have them being like, oh, they just, they just pulled on their hair or their ear. I know something's not, uh, something's amiss, mm -hmm. you know? So I, I think there's, it opens up um, a whole world of being conscious of physical, like physical descriptors can be more than just grounding or informing, you know? Is so, that, is that yeah. part of what's called the, the subtext of sorts that it informs by giving little clues, little tells here and there that also talk about in their own way that talk about the character's history and, you know, they're, they're little bits of 
animation of sorts that that really help clarify how that person is in the world without having to say something about you know without info dumping as the term is yeah there's you know that's a good point yes yeah yes <laughs> i also think there's the other mechanism of you have other people describe the character right that can be helpful but instead of having someone say oh i do this so i'm, I'm not trying to judge it but like oh uh, you always say that or you're all i like i like that i do that sometimes you can just have the character always saying that and always doing that right um yeah and it, that helps with that continuity and it helps even though readers may not have a conscious awareness that a character always does something specific or walks see walks in a certain way that's my thing i have a chart I say, how are they walking? So-and-so trots, so-and-so stumbles, so-and-so shuffles. And then, and then, I mean, then I kind of neutral, make it neutral during, during um, when the plot takes over or action takes over. But if they're just moving across the room, instead of saying Colin walked across the room, Colin shuffled resignedly to the back room and Colin mm -hmm. always shuffles when he's in the store because he hates the store. So he doesn't really want to be, you know, so like, um, but, but uh, yeah, instead of saying, you know, instead of saying, instead of just using the word to describe their emotional state or using the word or having someone say, you're always this or commenting on the behavior mm -hmm. or even the character thinking to themselves, oh, I did it again, which all work. You could couple that with physical grounding descriptors, behavior that is consistent. Um, yeah. So it's, it's bigger, you know, a lot of, I've read a lot of stuff about how, um, there's like a traditional literary style. And I've really tried to examine what people mean when they say that. Um, and I believe what I've honed in on is that it is in a traditional literary style, the protagonist tells you what they're thinking. They tell you what they're observing and they tell you how they feel about it. Um, whereas more modern plot driven things, I, I'm assuming, I, I'm, this is just my own research, seems to be more outside. Like, plot or um, action-based, um, emotion-based, uh, uh, doing, the characters are actively engaged in doing, they're thinking less, they're commenting less, they're reflecting less, and they're more actively present in their outside world, which was fun for, we call her Rose for me, because Rose is a character who has no, has very little internal dialogue and reflection ability. So she drives the plot in the book when her chapters take over, and I had to plan that out because she doesn't have the capacity. She doesn't reflect that much. She doesn't take the time for that. And I justify all that. Whereas Colin is all about the commentary and the reflection and the observation. So his voice, his dialogue, his chapters were all very planned to be, now, I'm, now I, the author, am providing insights into why things are going on. What's the backstory? What's the history? But I really had to make sure I understood what the traditional literary mechanisms were in Colin and what more modern external engagement looked like in Rose. But it all came back to me with psychology, right? Colin's a bit more hesitant. He's a bit more introverted. He doesn't really like to do as much where Rose is like, go, 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 go. And doesn't really stop, which is why they partner really well together. <laughs> um, but, um, oh my gosh, I, Totally don't know what we're talking about anymore. I went on a tangent. And I know this happens on all your podcasts. And I was, I listened to them. I'm like, I'll never be that person who goes on a tangent and forgets. And I've done it now. So I'm now in your in your cult there offering. Twice, <laughs> twice. Two Did I do it last two, time two, too? Yes, yeah. Two oh my God. <laughs> Just like, what were you saying? I'm so sorry. No, uh, I'm going to mute myself good. and have some water. But like, <laughs> what were we talking about? 
um character something character. oh yeah, physicality right there we, and, uh, sorry, there we go found it back. i'm done you talk now i'm gonna have some water found, you your, <laughs> found your way back so uh, in terms of that aphasia though for you as a writer aaron when when you're when you're working on something where do you draw in the i guess how did how did the details come to you when it's a not usually something that you kind of hold in your mind's eye, as it were, right? Yeah, I don't. Well, I don't hold anything in my mind's eye, and of course. So yeah, it's it's difficult for me in that sense because I have to always think about. It does vary depending on character. Um, some characters are super super detailed. Um, Maren, who's in the Sunrise Sovereign, she's one of the she's one of the scions. She's got this crazy link up. She's always thinking, but it's always like what people smell like. Um, she'll see people and it's like they smell of the mountains and the rain and it's beautiful but it's like you're really very woo but she's got these really different ideas and I'm so okay yeah, we'll, we'll go with it I like this it's great <laughs> but some aren't some are like you say Steph they, they're just doing their thing and some have really rich dialogues so I just go into internal monologues and I just go with it, it doesn't matter um, however the character wants to talk this is that's how we write it um, and, and it works sometimes because then they notice some things and they don't notice other things Um um, Brandon noticed um, Magali, who's an art gallery owner, and I'm not going to give any, many details away because I don't want to spoil her, but he's very, very, very sharp. It's the first time you see him um, in Matthew's narrative. He's wearing this suit with a hot pink shirt, and he carries it off. And Brandon's looking at him going, like, this guy looks like Lenny Kravitz. He dresses like Lenny Kravitz. I've never noticed what women dress like in my life, but I'm looking at this man, and I'm cataloguing what he wears. And it's like this moment where like, it's like, okay, oh, well, yeah, again, we'll, we'll write it then. And it seems to work because it's that sort of, which bits are because I won't notice any of it. You're never going to have the, the the door was blue and the this was that. It's not going to happen. I don't. I won't think about it. But some characters do, and so it depends on the narrative. Depends on what you get to find out, and mm. they'll tell you different things. That's curious how that comes though. When you as an author, like, aren't you, you don't see that I stuff. Know. So how do the, exactly how do those pieces come to you? I think that's fascinating. I don't know. I, I mean, I just know it. I know what they do, and they they tell me what to say. Oh. I suppose, and I'm like, oh, well, that's interesting. And I have to sometimes I have to go back and I go, but like with the bookshop, was the bookshop had the bookshop's blue? Oh, I'll put that in the beginning then, shall I? I don't know. <laughs> I've not thought about it. And so sometimes it's like, oh, okay. Okay, now we're doing that. That's yeah. that's cool. Um, but yeah, I don't I don't see any of those things. So for me, it's really it's really eye opening. And and often I find that when I'm writing a character, I start my brain starts thinking about how they think, and I start wondering how they think. With the book I'm just finishing, there's the two characters, and um, Emily's the the one that's in the, the in the 1940, and the way she thinks is very different. I don't know if she's neurodivergent. I don't know if she's just very. I don't know. I'm not sure. I think I think they probably would have called her backward. Um, I think everybody treated her very much like she was a child. But the way she talks was very, very different from anything I've ever written. And and she's the way she thinks about things. And she was talking about Hitler being the monster man who's in France and he's coming and he's riding on the bombs and he's he's chasing he's they're chasing the women and they're bringing the hunting cats. And it's it's really sort of childlike, but it's really and all the way through, and I while I was writing it, I was looking around the world in her view sometimes and thinking, how would you think about this? And that was really interesting because because I suppose for that, because I don't have an interview. I can take on the character's view and think about how they see things. And, and it's it's quite interesting. So I can take on different heads for a while and then they go again and then I get somebody else. And then I'm, I'm thinking about how they think for a while. 
That's then neat. I'm just so, there you go. Yeah. So it's kind of like as they're present, they're giving you the details and they walk away and the board is clear, you can focus on something yeah. else. Yeah. That's exactly how it is. Yeah. But it's it's awkward because sometimes they'll tell me something and I didn't have a clue about that. And it's just like, were you, were you going to tell me ever? I'm the author. Could I not have known this? This is quite a useful detail. And it's like, well, we told you now. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> but yeah, once they're done, once the book's finished and the story's gone, they're, they're gone. I don't hear them again. They just disappear. Yeah. It's funny you say, like, talking about, like, imbuing the character's headspace and how that can inform how you, like, interact in real in real life, right? Like, um, so I, I do a thing where I do a dialogue check where what I do is I... I have my text in front of me and one at a time I read out loud. So I read silently in my head, everything else, but I read out loud the characters and I always start the smallest characters to the largest and then finishing with the protect, like the, the narrator. Um, but it is really, I do that to make sure I don't have anyone that's too similar. It's just like a check. It's at the end. And that I don't have people saying, speaking in a similar way or, um sounding too much like me <laughs> so, um but it is funny I I have there are certain characters that are so strong and they're so uh I want to say selfish that after like doing this sort of um exercise as one of them in the course of this book I walked away from that and I was like oh that was it's so nice being in this person's head they're so yeah. focused on nothing else but them it's just like this vacation you don't ever you know or they're a very miserable character and you're like oh god i just need to, I need to like take a break right now like i'm so pessimistic and critical like I, I can't like i can't be this person they're just so so much and it's really funny how and then you gotta shake it off and and you gotta kind of do your thing but like it used to be like that with acting right like if you yeah. it's method acting. yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, if you have like a great writer and the and the writing is phenomenal, like and and you as an actor get to step into that role they've developed, it's so easy. They do all the work for you, right? And uh, it's it can be very fun taking a vacation from from yourself when when you are able to do a really really cool, unique or very distinct what like well crafted character. Um, yeah. yeah, it's funny that you, yeah, but it absolutely it totally can affect your emotional state your mood right like oh yeah this person just needs to speak i do that sometimes i have a protagonist i'm like i just want to slap you today just shut up <laughs> you're too too much <laughs> like stop complaining <laughs> like your life is not that bad and then i'm like of course it is because i'm about to make it terrible <laughs> like, yeah yeah we throw all this awful horror yeah. to them and it's like what's wrong with you why aren't you more optimistic as you throw something else is yeah. just obviously going to kill them just yeah. be happy yeah. oh, be reasonable <laughs> why didn't you why didn't you deal with this better because you're not letting them like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, characters, they're so crazy. <sighs> it's always, <clears throat> it's interesting how they um, they come to be, I think. I, I look at some of the uh, folks in my work in progress and I'm, I'm amazed and perplexed at where they percolated up from, you know, my head. Um, the, the differences in how even in in the time frame that I've had the story in my head and working on getting it down, the the versions of each of their beings has changed. It's just gotten richer. I can see them more clearly, and um, it's always neat how there's room for more complex interactions. Both for me, I think as a writer, seeing them more clearly, but also. Um, watching them interact with the world 
that I put them in. I think that's, that's, I don't know, it's remarkable. It's a bit of magic that comes together. Do, do you ever not want to part ways with a character? So you invent excuses to keep them around? I don't know, like, like, are you ever like, oh, I love this one so much. I just want to, I just want yeah. to just, yeah. Not most, not or, most of the time, no. Um, but on occasion, yes. I have one character from the Black Cat who wants a spin-off. And I'm very happy to write a spin-off for this character because this character is excellent. And I've actually written an afterword in this about what happens to all of them. And I'm, my favourite character in that, there will not be a spin-off, which I'm very sad about. Um, but the, character, the, one I'm, the book I'm writing at the moment, they're just finishing The Woman in White. It's left open that I could do A Woman in White too, and I might do that because because yeah I might um so yeah yeah I think yeah normally I'm like well I'm glad to be rid of you <laughs> that's that but yeah more and more some of the characters I'm like I really yeah it's very much a case of if you want to do this again sometime so yeah no yeah let's do that definitely yeah do you have any do you have any affinity like offer in yours yet or like are you like becoming really invested in in one or a few people there, there are a handful, a small handful that I'm, I'm strongly attached to because they seem to be my main, not my, my main protagonist, of course, but I think they're, they're the headliners in the story, um, and it's trying to decide how much chaos they're going to be able to, to deal with, but also there are some that I look at and think okay, this one's going to be expendable. What's going to be the most interesting way to dispatch them? Um, but I, I think I'm seeing more so that fact of uh, certain people that I'm going to have a real hard time if if I needed to change their life course um, because I see potential for more, more storytelling beyond this arc of the storyline right now. Because I've also looked at an idea for a prequel um, and a sequel, and I haven't done the quell just yet. Whether you know the pre or the sea, um, it's just getting that whole first story down. But there's there's a bigger, broader world of ideas and stories to tell, which is really exciting to me uh, and frustrating because again, the stalling never, and trying never, to, never gonna finish. I'm it's never just, gonna finish before I die, you know. I you've got to get at least one of these damn things done. <laughs> um so I think in terms of your question, I think there are a handful that I'm really reluctant to think about um letting go if I need to, but maybe not not in this first tale, maybe somewhere later on, because drama happens and and they might might need to change in terms of telling the direction of this story well enough. That actually, so here's my question for both of you too, because that kind of adds on to this other thing I was wondering. Have you ever, okay, so you have to look at plausibility, mm -hmm. right? In what your characters do and the world. Because if you don't want to have that like Deix at Machina moment, you know, or, you know, something inserts itself and fixes everything. That's, mm -hmm. I mean, you can, but it's, you want the plausibility. So have you ever been in a position where all of the building you've done and all the work you've done is solid and then you realize your character has to die or something like they're not going to make it because if you, if you, or, or in order for them to survive, you have to change, you have to add on a second story or you have to keep going to keep them around because 
everything logically lines up and there's no possible way you can justify them either surviving unless the world changes or you shift the circumstances or it continues. Right. Mm -hmm. Or you might have to be like, I can't, it's gotta be a standalone. Sorry. But you know, based on who you are, you don't have the, you're not equipped to survive this unless, you know, I pull in some sort of magic God moment who waves a wand and, you know, gives you wings or something. Right. But like, you know, you may not have that. You may not want to pull that particular ripcord. I, have you ever, ever done that before? Like, you're like, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I have. I actually have just done it with Black Cat and I got to a point, and I don't want to give too many details away, but I say basically it's a sentence in Feral Bookshop. You go in, you get a book, um, and it gives you incredible things, but then you have to pay. You always have to pay. And one of the characters is going in, and I was writing, it was actually Brandon and I was writing it and I ended up phoning up my alpha reader and we went on video call and I was in, I was tearing my hair out. I was like, I don't know what to do because I really want Brandon to try and win, but the bookshop's just too much. He's like, well, yeah, he's not going to win against the bookshop. The bookshop is an ancient evil entity that swallows everything up. How is he going to go? He's not going to win. And we're like, well, he has to, we have to try and do something. And it was just this moment where we're like, oh, try this, we could try this, we could try. Yeah. And, and it, it was, but it also, like you say, it's also plausibility. You can't just have one person go in and it's like, but why don't you be nice? Oh, what a good idea. I'll be nice. And it doesn't work <laughs> yeah. that way. You know, it's yeah. it just isn't going to work. So, yeah, it was that sort of how far can you stretch it to make an outcome that is plausible, realistic, but it still doesn't change anything. Yeah, that was that's been that was really tough. Actually, it worked, but it was a good two hour video call where we, we were both, it was like, like oh but what about and i'm like okay let's try it out like no because then what happens if this happened oh it was just ridiculous but it works it works it was it was work. and actually they keep taking full credit for the entire thing now which is quite frustrating but fine that's that's a really good <laughs> exercise though to have gone through that frustration because i think it helps cement your notion of what needed to stay mm -hmm. structurally intact and then all the different fixes just wouldn't wouldn't work. So I think it's good to have cleared that off the board instead of having it linger in the back of your mind once you finished it to think, well, maybe I could have done this. Um, so but no, it, I think that's it's good. an interesting, it's an interesting moment though, when you're like, it has to end this way, mm -hmm. you know, it, you know, I mean, even in, in, we call her Rose there, I asked every single one of my, my, my belt, my alpha reader, like five times and all my betas. I'm like, I don't want this thing to happen. I think I could fix it. And they're like, no, if you don't have this thing happen, there's no stakes. And I was like, Meh. but because I'm like, but it's so, it's so, uh, again, cliche. And like, is it necessary? And they're like, yes, <laughs> other, you know, it, it's not, you, you have to go there. You have to take this risk. You have to do this thing. It may not be fun. It may not be ideal, but yeah. Yeah. It has to happen. Same with the sunset sovereign. Uh, Isabel had to go to her dragon. She had to go to the sovereigns. Paul, had to die. I'm doing this now because at least it's March, so it doesn't matter anymore. People can be spoiled. It was in March. Paul had to die. That was the nature of the, the thing. And it was terrible. Even for me, I was thinking, can I not just keep her alive because I really like her? I can't. I can't. Yeah. I'm hoping because it was left open. It was like Isabel promised. And Yvain was like, you made a promise. So I'm hoping that, but I don't know. I mean, that's in the future. It's like, will it? Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> um. So in Writing your novel, Steph, um, we call her Rose. Did you end up having to research anything in particular? Which I'm sure yes. you did, but 
<laughs> yeah, there, there are three things that I stumbled upon that I actually thought were really interesting and I wanted to share um, because I learned a lot uh, in researching this and I wanted to give a couple shout outs too. So the first thing is, uh, so researching a lot about fusion technology, uh, which was wild. And again, I think I've talked about this before, but the amount I had to cut from the book that was interesting to me, but not relevant to the story was extensive. Um, but it, I, I, I did the thing that every author does is I found a random person on Twitter at two o'clock in the morning who like was from like Sweden. So shout out random person who I don't remember your name, but like I it like bombarded them with questions about the potential, where, where's the direction fusing, fusion technology is going in like the next hundred years. And they were great. And they're basically like, the biggest takeaway was is they can, it can get very small, um, but will still require a really large external energy source. Hmm. Um, because I was like, I have this third floor. Can we have multiple fusion machines that are operating on a building? And like, and he, the person, he was like, yes, absolutely. In a hundred years, that could definitely be the direction that um, fusion, fusion power goes, but you still would, would require like a, and so I mentioned that at the end of the book about how they're expanding and building more and more fusion places, but it has to be located like with waves and, and um, by the ocean and things. So, uh, cause that is a consistent, constant uh, source of energy that they could have. So I just thought that was like a really cool thing that I learned. Cause I know that fusion tech is something that is absolutely sustainable and something that like is continuing to develop. And it's taken a long time to, to have any real like headway made on it. Cause it's a very complex thing, but I just think it's very interesting that um, I found it interesting that uh, it is definitely a possible um, like energy source that could be very efficient and green and all that stuff. So yeah. And thanks random person on the internet for confirming that. So that's real. If you read the book, <laughs> that's, that's all based on ooh, current, uh, I just pulled my mic, pulled, uh, or sorry, current, um, science and projection. So yeah. The other thing was, yeah. Uh, the other thing was, um, uh, so in creating this dystopian world, I really had to be conscious of how was I going to write a really, really awful place um, and what was going to be the hook for that. Uh, not just sort of like the perception of awful, but truly, truly awful. And um, I researched a lot about uh, mechanisms of torture and <laughs> uh, yeah, and control and, you know, having the, having a governing body that appears really great, but underneath the surface is like really, really messed up. And I actually found most of my source material, of course, is in real life. So um, the Murder Act and all of these acts that the complot passes, the Murder Act specifically is actually something out of the UK in the, in the 1600s. How there was a period of time where uh, there was a murder act, and the whole point was that if a criminal did something awful, they they were to be tortured for a long period of time to purge their souls of their sins so that they could be pure before being murdered for real and entered into heaven. So yeah. a lot of, yeah. So the gibbets, really <laughs> yeah, so, so the gibbets that I referenced were very, very real and having a cell, a solitary confinement, and then having to hear other people slowly die is a very real thing. Was, was, was. Um, and, you know, it, I think that it, it's important to note like that because, you know, I, I went down some really interesting rabbit holes to find this out. And it isn't just stuff I pull out of places. But then Erica 
uh, actually was inspired by this book again from a, um, oh, uh, not a duchess, but um, baroness uh, from, again, around that time period, the 1600s, who had a real, real person and didn't find out till long after she passed away that she was bringing women into her castle and doing horrible, unspeakable things to them. Very, very specifically women. And I read a whole book about it and it's phenomenal. And I reference it in the back of my notes. Um, and it's all about women murderesses and serial killers and uh, really interesting uh, and disturbing. Um, but uh, again, got away with a lot of it because of her gender. So it's uh, uh, that was that opened a lot of why I approached Erica and Havu in the way that I did. And um, and I just wanted, again, yeah, to mention that it was really disturbing <laughs> and I had to learn how, what happened. How do how do you quarter a body? Um, <laughs> and most of that research actually came from the States and, uh, scientists and, and doctors. And I learned a lot of things about medical practices in the nineties in North America that I wish I could unlearn, but uh, are all different now, which is good. Um, there's, you know, let's be grateful for digital technologies that we don't have to harvest bodies for learning from unsavory places. Um, ugh. But again, it's all very real. And every single torture device that's mentioned in the book or way of killing someone is grounded in what has been done as recently as the 1990s. Um, and uh, with with a legitimate um, attachment to it. So food for thought as we live in our little world of comfortability for the most part, um, that uh, things happen that below the surface or behind a shiny veneer that we don't often uh, think about or have an awareness of. So, um, and also some things are no longer in practice, which is good. So that was, that was the other thing. The third thing though, which is a little more serious that I really want to talk about, because if anyone reads this book, I want to make sure that I go on the record for saying, uh, in researching, um, uh, you know, you know, you said it, the book's been out since June, so I'm just going to talk about this. Um, there is a character in the book who has a who brain trauma and their behavior is, again, very much grounded in reality. And the relationship that this individual has with several people in the book um, is is quite accurate. And and the things that are said about the complexities and the dynamics of navigating an individual who has permanent uh, uh, brain mechanical disability um, that is inflicted upon them um, is is quite real. And you see, and I wanted to just note that these are not things I make up. These are not sort of idealized or two-dimensional conversations that have. These are things that I have witnessed. <laughs> and I won't go into the details, not myself, but like um, I've researched and I've done my diligence and I've had these conversations and I have, well, I have witnessed some things. Um, so, so it's a complicated topic when we deal with, um, characters or people who are, we aren't often discussed or talked about in non, uh, glitzy artistic, um, you know, writing ways. It can be very easy to put certain types of people in a box and make it look all pretty or make it look more palatable for the public. And I just didn't want to do that. Um, and I and so I I I was very conscious of that things that were said in the book by the characters and certain practices that happened with this person um, might seem um, not like like it, it, yeah it's real like this is this is the sort of thing that happens. But I also want to note because this this question asked was asked me a lot 
why didn't this individual turn into being a larger problem for the characters? Why didn't this individual be sort of uh, one of the larger conflicts in the story? And I just really wanted to note that because this person has an extensive support network, you know, there is a staff that has been hired to care for this person. Um, there is a whole building and a whole system that supports one individual. <laughs> and so even though there is this bear behavior is alluded to the challenges that they have, and it doesn't seem that bad in the book. And it's like, oh, it's all under control. And, and I'm, yeah, because there's like 80 people watching after this person who follow them and who operate. And that's not what happens in real life, right? We don't have an extensive support system that has like an entire community that rallies around one person. Um, and I've seen so many times, I just want to give a shout out to individuals, so caregivers and educators and psychologists and doctors who are the front line for working with people with complex injury, complex trauma, because, um, and they don't talk about, their story doesn't get told because it isn't fun and it isn't fancy. And there's often a lot of parts to it that aren't sellable um, and aren't palatable um, that we don't like to discuss. Um, and, you know, I didn't go super dark and super deep with it. I don't want to say dark, but I didn't go, I could have gone further. I chose to just keep it kind of above board because, I was having more of a lighter tone, but there are there are things that are navigated that I just want to note that um, I think there's a yeah it's the day to day that often is the struggle um, with individuals that that we outside of that don't understand how that grind can take its toll um, and the place that Rose comes from in this scenario. Uh, is one of having lived this for a very long time and having been that frontline support with no support herself for a very long time. Um, and so it's just, I just think, you know, it can be very easy to judge and it has been easy for people to judge the reactions of, of how sometimes frontline workers have their human moments or how they uh, are perceived when they express their frustration about situations or they put up barriers or boundaries um and i just think that coming to these situations from all of us with a grain of empathy is important or sympathy or understanding and uh so i just wanted to like shout that out in this particular thread because it was a, a thing that was inserted that i was very conscious of needing it to be accurate but also knowing that it would be very easy to misinterpret or have a bias that comes into itself to judge the way that it's handled. And the most, and again, this came up a lot and I wouldn't have said anything if this hadn't been mentioned a lot. Um, but I did really want to emphasize that the only reason that this, that this character's behavior in this world didn't turn into what they feared it might is because of the extensive broad network that um, supports this individual so that they have a semblance of a, calm and um uh, navigatable life um yeah so those are just the sort of things that i wanted to note for anyone who chooses to read the book or who has read it or who's listening in if that's something that interests you uh because those are the things that came up the most in the process and afterwards of questions that were asked and um sort of flags as it were like why did you you didn't have to do that da, 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 da. well i yeah I chose to, so, <laughs> um, but yeah, so there's just some clarity on that because, uh, yeah, I wanted to come from me because it's good sometimes to have the author putting their two cents in so that there isn't, um, 
assumptions made that aren't always helpful. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you for giving that's, me that platform and that yeah, space. You're welcome. That's that's what the <laughs> that's what the show is all about, right? Yeah. To be able to listen to the authors directly. So no, that's good. I appreciate that. With um with the work that you've done uh, recently on some of the new stuff, not the Sunset Sovereign collection, but the new pieces, are you finding you're delving into any particular research venues? Um, some, a lot of it, I'm being very lazy because my background is I used to be a lecturer in prisons, which is why I have a lot, it comes up a lot. Um, so 72 hours was set in an asylum, but I based it in Broadmoor where I spent a little bit of time working with um, people with severe and dangerous personality disorders. And I and I also did a lot of work on um, uh, advocacy. So some of the characters in that, I've actually worked with in real life. I've just taken their entire character and just plonked it straight into the book, which has helped. Uh, but I do the same thing. I try and make sure everything is completely realistic. Uh, I did a lot of very strange Googling um, to find out what, kind of um what first i went first with what kind of um elements could cause hallucinations um aggression and all the rest of it and do those things occur naturally in minds and what i actually found very incredibly was that heavy metals are found in the water in mines and those particular heavy metals do provide um short life uh, respiratory problems hallucinations and aggression i was like it's like art is irritating life. So in King of the Mine, when I've written about the, the bad guys that are living in the mine and they are drinking this, eating, drinking this water and eat, eating this moss that gives them hallucinations, it's completely grounded in fact. That is literally what would happen if you went to a mine and started licking the walls. Probably wouldn't, but yeah. Yeah, so I, I find that, yeah, I go and get some good research and stuff like that. It, it, makes, it makes life interesting. When somebody mentions something, you go, yeah, it's real, real. Yeah. It certainly enriches the, I was going to say validity, I don't know if that's the right word, but it, it enriches the sensation of the world that you're immersing the reader into, I think, because you have so many things that are grounded in reality that it helps give a firm footing when someone sits and reads the book and, and there's there's depth of detail that doesn't feel like it's just been, you know, pulled out of the proverbial you know. Oh no, I, I research everything. When um, Matthew goes to, to the wine bar in Oxford, I found a very nice looking wine bar online. I went through the wine list because I needed to find a specific Italian wine from a vineyard in Italy, because of course there's references to Rome, um, a vineyard that would have been around at the same time as Rome. And I found this wine and I actually looked up the notes. It sounds lovely. I haven't drank it yet, but I followed, I took the notes exactly. So when Matthew is drinking this wine, he's all like, he's great. Like, this is real. And it's like, I actually nearly put in the back, oh, if you wanted to drink the wine, it's in, you can find this wine. It's here in the Piedmont Vineyard and blah, blah, blah. But I thought, oh, this goes too far. But yeah, yeah absolutely. It's sort of, you, you're getting into people to, to suspend belief, make sure the other details are completely right. right. And then there's no problem. They know you, you, they've got, you've got them in good hands. Mm -hmm. That's fabulous. I was going to ask you about um, a sense, <clears throat> pardon me, a sense of this notion around um, that that question of why this story now. I, I think sometimes that comes up. I think in discussions around not necessarily editors but publishers, etc., looking at a work that's going to go out into the world, asking the question, "Why are you telling this story at this time?" Does that ever go into the process for you when a 
a story comes to fruition, whether for either of you, like when you're when you're looking at spending a piece of time really working either on a new novel idea or a new story idea of why are you telling this story now? Anybody jump in? <laughs> yeah, sorry. Um, uh, I, I mean, I always start with this is going to be fun. <laughs> you know, it's a really hard job. It's hard to be an artist. It's hard to be an author. It's hard to be anything. It's it's difficult, difficult life, world, mm -hmm. et cetera. Uh, so first and foremost, am I going to enjoy this? Um, because if you're not, then don't do it. <laughs> um, but I guess like the specifics of the story, I think it depends. Like, I mean, I do think about release times, like, you know, there's sort of peak times where you would release a novel. I think like Craig mentioned this, right? Like there's good times in the year to release specific genres. Mm -hmm. And sometimes like being like, uh, like you said earlier, Aaron, like you got to do, you got to be, you got to be your professional and, and get your stuff out and be a good adult and get it done. Right. You got to do your, you know, do this important stuff. And I think that is, yeah, there, like there's some work that you're like, yeah, I gotta, it, it, I gotta do this first before I do this other thing. Um, for me, it's more like, what do readers need before other things happen? Like, or why, why this story now? I don't know. Like, I don't really think too much about bigger picture, like where my stories might fit elsewhere, yeah. more it, just like in my little zone of artistry. I, I think in the, in the way I'm thinking of the question, it's what what is the need, what is the compulsion for the author to tell mm. this particular tale now? Not so much as far as, where does it fit in terms of release or what's happening mm. in the world? But why, why am I feeling like I really need to tell this story? I think it's that's real. the question. No. Yeah. It's the, it, if something wants to be told, tell it. Yeah. You know? I yeah. Think that's what it, yeah. yeah. It's real. It's here. Yeah. Yeah. You can hear it. Yes. You have yeah. To tell it. yeah. And if you don't, you're going to go crazy. You literally, like you will, like you got to get it out. It's got to get out. Um, it, yeah. It has to get out. Good. No, that, yeah. no, that's perfect. No, that's exactly yeah. what I what I think. So that happens is that it uh, it's a tale that needs to be told. That's all, pure and simple. Yeah. yeah, I'm a mood writer, so I go through stages. Um, obviously, I write in a couple of different genres, so I'm I am having to be organised about scheduling out next year. Um, mm -hmm. so obviously, like Black Cat scheduled for January, um, Woman in White, which I'm just about to finish, is scheduled for April. And then I'll be doing a folk horror for for July. But I'm not writing more horror after this. So I'm done with horror for a while. So it's that sort of knowing that I'm a mood writer and I now want to go into dark fantasy and want to write about glass and aesthetic and crystals and, and magic and shadows. But at some point, I've got to go back to horror, which is also fine, because then I'll be like, oh, I'm just sick of this stupid stuff. I want to talk about devils and ghosts and 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 whatever else and then i know that's fine and i sort of i can go back to that so but yeah i do i do go off them for a while and then i come back but my readers have an, want an expectation of what they want they know that they, they want the next dragon one they want the next dystopian one or something so it's that sort of but i don't want to write that i want to write something else and so but they're like excuse me so i think it is partly that you have to be looking ahead and being sensible and scheduling so that people do so it goes out and it is there's a consistency but at the same time I don't want to just write what people want me to write I want to write what I want to write I want to write um I've got a story in my head that is waiting very patiently about a group of elderly space librarians called the space dowagers and they are going around 
space in the Rubin system, within the Woston system, but elsewhere, and they come across an amnesiac tra time traveler and doesn't know where he's come from. So they're in their very um, curmudgeonly way. They're like, well, we're just going to have to sort this out for you then, aren't we? And they're fantastic. And I can't wait to write that. <laughs> and it's that sort of like, it's not, I'm not ready for it yet. I'm doing other stuff. I want to do the fantasy. But there will be a point where I'm going, I'm going to write space librarians and nobody's going to stop me because mm. I'm an indie author and I can. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's interesting too, like, yeah, yeah, this premise of like, this is the time to do it. This is what I'm going to do it. This is what I want to write. So I will. Um, it's, you know, even like with my first two books I wrote, it wasn't the time to finish them. Like it just, I, I wanted to go do other things. I needed to tell other stories. And I actually think a lot of it too was like, I needed more information about the industry and the world, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I also needed more information about like I didn't have the answers to certain things as a human. And these were certain things you can't always research. Like there's an arc that my, and I don't want to write a six book series if I don't know the ending. Like I really want to know what the ending is going to be. And if I didn't know yet for certain characters what their ending was, because I needed to live a little bit more and talk, you know, take some personal risks or, you know, navigate things in real life so that I could accurately inform the work and the arc. Um, it didn't, it didn't make sense, you know? So yeah, it wasn't the time, but it's there, you know, and you, you know, there are other things to write in the meantime, you know, it's not like, I don't know, like, I do know that there are some people who have one story to tell and that's great. And you do you, but I also think for me, there's a thousand and million stories and you just find them and they'll give, they'll, they'll arrive when they're, it's their time and you tell them when it's their time. And if it's not their time, trust your gut, trust yourself. You don't always need to know why it's not its time, but um, if you do, great. Um, but yeah, like I, I, yeah, there's just, you got to tell it when it's time and you'll know because you're the author <laughs> and if you're banging your head against the wall and you're like, ah, it's not, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta go write like, yeah. Like even with my, yeah, my current work in progress, like I'm, I love it, but I, I needed to pause for two weeks and take care of some other business because I wasn't 100% in it and I didn't want to just spin my wheels. So oh. I, you know, released another book in the meantime. <laughs> and then uh, now I'm excited next week to write until until the holidays and I'm just going to sit and enjoy it for exactly 10 days. exactly the same thing as Sunrise. I, I yeah. paused it at 25,000 words um, because I know where it's going, but it's just not going. And there were bits in it that I'm doing, but it, I'm just like, and there's something I've missed something. So it's just put it away. I'm not in the mood for writing dragons. I'm not, I haven't got my heart in it. I'm going back in through necromancy, through fairy tales, and then I'm going to go in head on to sunrise and it'll be like, I'm coming for you and I'll, I'll finish it. It just needed that, that cooking time to yeah. pause and then I'll go back in and I'll be fine. And, and sometimes Often. in that time, amazing things happen and you're like, oh, thank goodness I stopped. Thank goodness yeah. I paused. You know, flashes of ideas will come to you at the weirdest times and you're like, oh, if I hadn't been staring at the wall for three hours today, I would never would have thought of this. And that's actually super essential to telling this particular story. I don't, I should be clear. I don't stare at the wall for three hours. I'm far too busy, but <laughs> like, you know, I'm washing, I'm washing the dishes. Yeah. Doing a puzzle, right? Yeah. Something, something kind of getting out of your head. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, that's why they're doing Absolutely. this. And that's the next step. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. yeah. It's when we're distracted doing other things, the mindless stuff. That's, that's when uh, ideas flow, I think. Yeah. We're not, we're the not, shower. We're not standing in our own way, brushing our teeth. Yeah, all all that yeah. good stuff. Cycling. 
cycling yeah. for me i get the stories when i'm cycling when i'm cycling and then i'm like i haven't got a pen i can't write here and i have to dash in and i just grab something and i'm like scribbling and people i'm like don't don't speak don't say anything and i'm literally scribbling it down in like words this and then then this and then rah, and a thing and then and then i'm like, I'm like what did i but yeah i get it when i'm cycling yeah. sometimes when i'm walking and i have to dictate into my phone to say what actually happened but and even then it's more chaotic but yeah yeah something like that and it's just I woke up at like three in the morning, like two weeks ago and wrote the first page of a book I'm not writing until next year. And I was like, no, it had, I, I know I was just, this is brilliant and I'm never going to think of this again. And then I went back to bed and you're like, I have it. It's sitting in my, I like <laughs> formatted it. it, wrote the whole page. I looked back at it the other day. I'm like, oh, this is really, this is really good. <laughs> Thank goodness I woke up. <laughs> it works. I've got Pilgrim's first chapter. He came in one time and I was writing something else. Brown bold as brass strolled in and he was like my name's Ro and this is who I am and I'm like oh my god okay just let me get a page and yeah. I write it all in and then I've had nothing else since nothing and yeah. only now I'm finishing Woman in White yeah. program starting to stroll back in and it's sort of like what have you been waiting for me so no I haven't actually but yeah it's sort of like, <laughs> I had to just write that first chapter and put it down and then it was like oh whoa, this is exciting and then it's just are you uh, are you looking at differently at uh, word count or page count differences now? Because I remember for a while you were saying you weren't looking at the longer novel size things. You were doing more novella. Has that been yes. broadening for you now, or is that still not really your cup of? Um. Yeah. Both. Yes and yes. Probably <laughs> is correct answer to that question. Uh, Black Hat came out at seventy five. Um, bang on the same as Sunset. 300 pages. Woman in White is coming out probably going to be 33,000. So it's a nice chunky novella. I think I'm still going to be writing a lot of novellas, but some of the books want to be a novel and I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable with it. I don't like writing novels as much. Novellas are much more interesting. Much more interesting. You can get them done in three weeks and they're just they're finished and you can put it aside and then do something else. Um, but some do need to be a novel and I'm getting more they're in my, so I can do it in my stride now. I'm like, okay, let's do this. But I can't do them all the time. I can't just write novel after novel. I have to go back to a novella, flash fiction, do sure. something else. Yeah, break things up. Yeah. For yeah. Sure. So after this, um, obviously, they've just done The Black Cat, which was a novel. Um, Warm and White is, gonna be, uh, is a novella. And I think the next two will probably be 50,000 words max. And then I'll go in and do Sunrise at a full length. I think that's going to be about 80,000. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wonderful. I love that. I haven't written a novella yet and it's a little daunting. And I, I think that's going to be my artistic goal next year. I really want to like feel real good about doing a novel, like really good. And then kind of, I feel good about short stories. I feel good about flash fiction. I and I really want to just like, I want to own a novel <laughs> and then kind of back it up and, and look, I don't know why, like, it's so weird. Like I, I I've heard people say like in the process, you start with you know, microfiction, flash fiction, short story, novella, and then novel, and then series. Well, I started with a series, and then I went to short stories, and then I went to novel, and then I did flash fiction. So I'm jumping everywhere, which is kind of like, I don't know why, but it's your really process. Matter. Yeah, it's your process yeah. doesn't matter. Yeah, I but I, I love the idea of a novella. Like, use like, like mm -hmm. a nice chunky 30, 35k. Sounds lovely. Yeah, yeah. It, it is, like and it really works. You have to pair it back. Um, it takes a, it's a lot shorter. Um, yeah. 72 hours took place literally over 72 hours it's only three days there's nothing else to it that was twenty thousand words and it was done and yeah. it was a lot more and it just works the same with woman in white and woman in white 
was took place the, the historical element took place over you know every year or so but but the the, the, the modern part it's a few weeks and it's there's so there's a lot many parts to it we've only got a few different um uh, state settings in there it's all much more there's less characters we've only got four or five four main characters in the modern section plus the ghost and that's it there's not all this big huge cast it's 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 great it's really really yeah. i love it i think it's really it's much more like writing a play it's much yeah. more like writing a play i think you have to have your your scene changes and it's all really nice and tight and then, but yeah no it's great so much fun love them and yeah you get it done and then you can put a fancy cover on and go and make another one yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, there's an audience for it, especially at this time of the yeah. year when people are doing all of their book challenges. I mean, why people want to do a book challenge, I don't know, but they do. And they do the whole thing of, oh, I want to write, read 50 books. I'm only at 25. Right. Can you introduce me with a novella? And I'm like, yeah, have 100 pages. Well, 50 pages. I, I read yours this morning in like 45 minutes, and it's good. I mean, that's a big part of it, is if a book is really good, it's you, you read it quickly. But it was lovely. It was, you know, it was like, oh. I can just sit down, I can get in the world, I can enjoy it, and I can be affected, and then I can move on. <laughs> yeah, and you can read yeah. it within that time, yeah. and it's done. Yeah. 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 I, I like short stories. Like, I, I like, they're nice and readable, you know, but but I do think novella would be very, yeah, it's a, it's different. It's a little, it's a nice little piece. It's a nice little, yeah, little, little novel. I like that idea. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Yeah. Works. Yeah. The longer ones are stressful, but they're good if you can do them well. And, you know, if you can have them be interesting, then they're pretty fine because you can you can do some weird stuff with novels. Like yeah. you can do some really interesting locations and uh, yeah, complex stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, you've yeah. got a lot more navel gazing that you can yeah. stick in there. Yeah, yeah, you, you, you've not got as much time with yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a, like a whole proper siesta or a meal as opposed to a quick pint down the pub. It's it's, it's very different in pace. Yeah, it? yeah. Yeah. I think it helps them not for both. My novels are getting better because I've been writing novellas. I've worked more yeah. on the pacing. And yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you were saying something earlier, Aaron, that I thought was really interesting about um, scale of a story in terms of mm -hmm. uh, yeah. the number of characters and how big or tight uh, a, a narrative seems to be. Uh, I was thinking about my current work in progress, and I'm really finding that the scale of it has has become, well, it's very much space opera genre. That's kind of the story that I'm telling. Um, and it's just a huge cast of characters uh, or potential characters, whether some are going to be uh, fleshed out more thoroughly. Obviously, they have to be, and others are not, uh, and become more fodder for the storytelling, uh, but it's been really cool to see how the, the place just keeps populating. And, and I'm wondering whether or not that's uh, something I need to be concerned about as I'm working through it, or whether I should really let the let the thing go and see where it takes me. No, I think you can. I think you can let it go. A lot of people, readers, really enjoy a, a multiverse. And you can, there's no harm in writing a story you've got right now and then writing another related story with some of the other characters mm. like Stab's been doing. Or just stick within that world and keep writing within that world until it stops. I don't think it has to be just one linear story anymore. You know, people like a good link up. It's not a problem. Yeah. Just keep writing that that story, but somehow, you know, in another way. And it, it really right. kind of feels that way, too, because as I look at it, it's not really 
trying to force the story arc further because I really feel like this one has a particular ending to this tale, but there are either people within it or lines of lines of storytelling within it yeah. that feel like it broadens everything even further. And it it's very cool. I just, I love it. So. I think there's nothing wrong with that. I know we do this thing where we have prequel, sequel. It doesn't have to be linear that way. You can go mm -hmm. sideways. Why can't you go sideways and do another world somewhere else within it? And I think right. it's all right. Yeah. And even some standalones that that take the story elsewhere. Yeah. But still function within the 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 universe that's that's been built exactly. up. Exactly. Yeah. I think it, I think people have an appetite for that. I think in particular because they don't have to jump into a series and remember what happened in book one. It's it's not a problem. They just mm -hmm. keep going with the same flavor of it, and it's just it's more like a tapas, I suppose, isn't it? And you just keep going with the, 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 that flavor of the book, and in a different story. So I don't think you need to worry about it at all. But I think you also don't have to worry about forcing the story arc to be ten books or twenty books. Your story ends when it does, but that doesn't mean the world ends. You can keep that. You can stay in that world forever. It's not yeah. a problem. That's good. Yeah, that's kind of how it feels for me. So I'm I'm excited about that prospect. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, like, well, I was just gonna say, like, my series it has like uh, each book has a new world added to it, so it has a new cast with some that continue through, some that don't. Mm -hmm. So it, yeah, and it's massive, but I, I think it's fine. You know, yeah, you just gotta track it, create a Trello board, <laughs> have your post-it world, right? Just yeah, so that you can, you know who's doing what when the dates yeah. timelines always throw me like yes anything number related my my husband's the number guy so he reads all my stuff and he's like yeah that's that can't happen at this point because <laughs> or, you know like like timeline wise or or quantity is wrong oh that's the worst question when writers are like like focus on the on the population size in your world this is logical i'm like i don't know <laughs> what are you talking about like like what's a thousand people like who knows they're like mm, there's probably gonna be more like a couple million and you're like oh <laughs> what so but anyway like uh yeah i think size cast it's it, it is what it is <laughs> you just track it and you're fine <laughs> yeah oh it's my thoughts <laughs> you said that you had a question Aaron. i do i do i want to know because obviously it's great seeing the other fellow dystopian authors and it's great seeing dystopian authors diving into other genres but I love this particularly because it means that readers will follow, enjoy the romance and then come to the dystopian efforts what I want to know is you've done this and dystopian romance is hard to blend together what do you have plans to do next within the genre are you staying within dystopian are you going to do something completely different are you going to blend them again what are you doing that's a thank you that's a great question um well I've already dabbled in a little bit of horror Although I don't think my horror is as traditionally horrible as as other horror writers are, um, so I'm I don't think I'll ever I don't think I'm going to go bigger with the horror that I've already done. Um, I probably will expand on the sci-fi elements of the dystopian. So like, I would say I'm def definitely good. My next one is a again is a dystopian romantic tragedy. Um, so that'll be fun to bring in more classic uh, Greek plotting um greek tragedy style uh probably look at some elizabethan roots of informing how things fall apart when i when i get to that point of confirming structure um the next book though the novel is very speculative uh like really traditional speculative like like again grounded in the world 
uh, are rooted in the world. Um, trying to keep the romance at least for another two books as a dominant element and have that dystopian in place, but really looking at more wilder story, like more like the speculation, the speculative genre is more taking place in the formatting and the structure of the story versus the, uh, versus the characters and the plot and the conflict and the setting. Um, so that's going to be in my next challenges is really being complex and bizarre with format. Um, and how these different characters interact and how the world informs is, and I've got ideas for that. So, but after that, uh, with the series, it's very sci-fi. So I think it'll be much more, uh, so I'm gonna have to spend a lot of time um, really, really thinking very logically about what is going on now and where could that go? Uh, where could that track, Where what, based on certain things I'm already setting up in my first three novels um, of this world where uh from a scientific element like and i've already started the research like um animals i allude to this a lot in my stories there's no animals in the world because i already have this concept that um we're killing them all <laughs> they'll, they'll be gone <laughs> so, uh they'll, they'll be replaced with robots um but i have to keep insects and i have because otherwise we can't survive yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, and I have to. So that I have to do a lot more learning, um, and from a sci-fi perspective. And I actually have a couple great resources um, that, that I found on Twitter a year, like a year and a half ago. Um, but again, really advising for sci-fi writers, like looking for fringe information. So like, don't necessarily go to mainstream sources or mainstream like big names. Like, look for small grassroots organizations, small groups around the world that are doing tiny work on very specific technologies and then using that to inform where it could go yeah. and there's some really cool things happening there so I have to do all that work though that's going to be no, no, it works yeah. really well I, in fact I yeah. interviewed a, yeah. a, a farmer an underground farmer in London it's for a future project um, because there's going I'm going to be writing a story about um, robots that renovate an underground bomb shelter into a into an underground garden and then basically mm. the, the locals come around and, and decide to use it um but i ended up i interviewed them emailed them and they were they were wonderful to tell me all about it and they're doing they have an underground farm in the middle of london and they're growing lettuces and all sorts and it's mm. like what? and they told me all about it and they were sending me this stuff about all of their technology and i'm just like yes it's amazing and i've actually said when you finish the book we'd like to have it because we have the underground farm. We sell stuff. We have a farm. We have customers. We want to put the book in here because it's about an underground farm. And I'm like, yes, thank you. I just have it right written down. I don't know when I'm going to write it. But yeah, when like you say, when you go to that really small elements of people, they're, they're all out for it. They're just like, yes, yes. I will tell you everything about, I know, I'm just, it's just fascinating. It is. And it's just interesting in general to learn about and to find out what people are doing. It's so fascinating. Yeah. It, I, I think my other direction is going to be space. And I, similar, I have a person who has emailed me and said, Hey, if you need any astro, astrophysicist stuff checked, I'm like, yes, <laughs> yes, I will. <laughs> yeah. 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 I actually, I watched a, a documentary on, on Netflix. I'm sure it's very popular. As I say, like go to the fringe, I'm going to Netflix um, <laughs> on infinity. And it was awesome. And I, and I, there's all these like resources and doctors that they talked about. So I'll probably start like looking into what their work is but it was discussing the notion of infinity um as a number and how like practical applications and like our worlds but like it it was interesting from a, a extra terrestrial or not extraterrestrial but from a space time etc cetera, etc cetera, perspective um 
you know, what are different. Yeah. I really want to start bringing in outside of our planet, and that is, I need to do, yeah, I need to look a lot at, um, I don't very little about it. All of this is funny. I don't, all of my learning about science comes from fiction. (laughs) I took one, I took astronomy 101 in college 20 years or 10 years ago. And that's the extent of my formal education. Everything else has been like reading Anne McCaffrey and like, and, uh, uh, and I'm like, I know everything because I read all of Anne McCaffrey's books. So I know, I know everything about science and space travel. Like, no. <laughs> so, uh, I have to, uh, I got to actually look at some sources and do a little bit more, but, um, uh, yeah. So yeah, the sci-fi, I am very interested in that. Yeah. I've been reading a lot of Ray Bradbury and he's totally accurate about his, the science. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. The classics. Oh. oh, I love Ray Bradbury. He's yeah. Fun. Good, good writer. Yeah. Anyway, so, so how uh, how do you feel about giving us a, a wee sample of your work now? I feel pretty good about it. All right, good. I'm gonna get into my performance voice. Yes. Um, so <laughs> I'm just gonna read. Um, I'm just gonna read the first like section um, of chapter one from Colin's perspective, the dream I had, uh, and uh, I'll take it. I'll take it through to where I, it stops, where it's the first pause in the first chapter is because. Um, yeah, why not? Beginnings are important. And I'm very proud of this beginning. So, all right. <clears throat> and it's also good because you're not giving away any spoilers. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. All right. Oh, all right. So page one of, of 400 pages. Here we go. <sighs> it was a slow day. The last of my slow days. From the time my shift started at nine to the beginning of my 3.30 break, only two customers came into the store. One was a professor at the university, a brainy, distracted type. She fingered a few of Pat's rechargeable pens, then left without buying anything. The second was a member of the complot. He came in, chatted with Pat in the back office, then left with bulging pockets. Pat, my employer and owner of the store, always paid the monthly dues in his back office on the slow days. Cabinet members liked doing their business behind closed doors. But other than the professor and the sleaze bag from the government, Pat's provision plaza stayed empty, which was good because I hadn't read the entire news cycle that morning. I'd slept in after spending the night perusing Lurk, Kanakia's secret chat channel, to see if the Shroud had planned a demonstration. Lurk was silent though. It had been a slow week that was ending with a slow day. As Pat bustled around his office, I leaned against the cashier's counter and scanned my armcom, a portable communication device that wrapped around my wrist. A report from the Oakland smog covered the latest food shortage. Union Update released an expose about the dangers of rodent overpopulation in the remaining tree groves. I reread the final paragraph in the update article, hoping something other than burrowing moles might leap off my nuclear screen. But Union Update's closing statement merely stressed the importance of reporting the digger outbreak to the complot through the official channels. I ran my thumb across my arm com and the screen went dark. Scratching my sideburn, I stared at the analog clock hanging above Pat's front door. As the long hand ticked around the faux mahogany face, my eyes followed its unfamiliar path. I was still getting used to human-made materials. 
She's a beauty, eh? Pat's voice rasped in my ear. Sometimes I stay late, watching the time. I held my stance against the counter and my gaze on the clock as I aimed my words at my employer. Where'd this one come from? Eurasia, Pat shortled, then his voice dropped. They can create nice materials across the ocean now that their roadways are, roadways are finished. Can you imagine? I imagined Pat shaking his shaggy blonde head and his inverted cheeks turning pink with pleasure. I'd never live on a continent made of roads, but to each their own, eh? Pat clucked his tongue. I'd go batty if I had to stare at concrete all day. But a clock is better? I grinned, picturing Pat alone in the store, watching the minutes disappear. That clock is the best money can buy, son. Pat jabbed my shoulder with his sharp finger. That frame is made of real fake wood, from the fake wood forests. You can't get fake wood like that in Kanukia. All we got are rocks. I glanced at the plaza storefront window, at the view that consumed all my slow days since I'd accepted Pat's job offer and moved to Union. Overlapping slabs of slate surrounded the center of Oakland University, the circular commons lined with government-funded retailers. Weathered sentinel towers guarded every curve, flanked by a pair of complot officers who watched over the student body during the day and late into the night. Slanted stone fountains with no water, chipped stone benches with no occupants, crumbling stone pathways with no passers-by. Even though the university was at capacity, the spring wind and frequent storms made outdoor play impossible. Though nobody played back then not without a direct order. I'll just stop there. I feel like that's good. It's like four minutes or so. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, yeah. That's a good part. <laughs> Set the scene. Set yeah. The scene. Yep. Yeah. Very quickly after this, we meet Rose. <laughs> like on the next page, but I have to go with, yeah. Anyway, it's, it's, uh, yeah, I like to, I set the, I wanted to start slow. That was the whole setting up the the contrast between what Colin's world is like, the you know beginning of the, the the world on the other side, the ordinary world versus the extraordinary world, right? And uh, right. Rose brings in this chaos that uh, I really wanted to highlight. That prior to Rose bursting in the store and things happening, mm -hmm. Colin had a very steady, horrible existence, <laughs> and not much happened. So yeah, that's cool. Thanks. I like that. Thank you. Any um, any thoughts around what you what you wanted uh, readers to take away? When yeah, um, yeah, I have. So I have a process. I always know what I want readers to take away, and I know that that's not something that authors are always do. But I every time I start a project, I have a list of seven questions I ask myself, which is. When one of them is, what do I, what is one of the takeaways? What am I trying to accomplish? What do I hope people, what resonates? And in this one, very specifically, what I really wanted people hopefully to read was, or leave feeling that even in very challenging, awful circumstances, there are ways for people to, um, I don't even want to say survive and not thrive, certainly, but to find moments and to find people and to find pockets of love or beauty or hope that sustain them through to better times. Mm -hmm. And that even though things feel overwhelmingly challenging uh, and everyone has a different set of challenges, everybody has a different reality that they navigate, 
But even when things are the bleakest for us or for these characters or for anyone, you can always search out or pursue or fight for um, those moments, people, circumstances that make everything feel a little less bleak, that bring a little more color, that um, are, it's not beige, everything, you know, you can find the passion, you can find love, you can, but it does take a, an intention. And I think that was what my takeaway was, is that every character, the main characters in this book, their intention is driven by hope and it's for the love of themselves, of their country, of someone else, of their ideas, but it's driven by hope and it's driven by love. And uh, I think that's what I wanted the takeaway to be, which is why I really actually thought romance worked fairly well in this circumstance. Um, because I do think it's very easy to, especially, you know, it's easy to say dystopian is so awful and no one wants to read it and nobody wants to see it. But I do think you can do it in a way that provides um, examples of how people endure in the most awful circumstances because they exist. Like, you know, and there was also other research I did. Oh, the happiness project. It's amazing. It's been out of Harvard for a while. And I'm sure it's still going around as there's like happiness podcasts. There's all these different things that look at how human beings um, find um, uh, spars to cling to of light during their own personal or global or community catastrophe. Um, and if you look at those things, it does provide concrete examples that we all have agency to a certain extent that we can um, utilize in these circumstances uh, that will carry you through or help you endure. Um, and it's so easy to tell ourselves that things are impossible. And it's easy to look at fact. It's easy to look at statistics and say, can't be done. Um, but if you look again at the opposite side of that, instead of saying, oh, I'm going to cough again, one second. Sorry. Um, instead of saying, it's easy to believe in this, that this is impossible. You sort of flip that and say, it's gotta be possible because people have been doing this since the dawn of humanity. And I just don't, I don't believe in the doomsday clock. I don't believe that we're nearing our end. That's not my belief system. I believe that human beings, um, you know, we are the catalyst of our own destruction so many times, but we also are the thing that saves us so many times that keeps us going, that is innovative, that lifts us up. And so if you pursue the people and the systems and the mechanisms that actually are, are lifting us above and, and finding ways to improve, even in challenging circumstances or endure, it's really inspiring. And uh, I'm going to drink water now because I'm about to cough again one second. Yeah. Anyway, it's just, uh, it, and it can be very, um, so yeah, that's a lot of, a lot of, I like to write the the scary fatalistic side too, where nothing works out. But I think in my novels, there, you know, there's there's going to be hope in a lot of it. And and how you choose to take that away is up to is up to readers. But mm -hmm. and I do want to say though, every I make sure several times in the book, I'm like, I compare Rose's version of Kanakia versus the current. And I I did research around the world, systems of governance, systems of leadership that are effective in that they are achieving a positive uh, mindset in their employees or their people, um, that citizens feel 
uh, productive and uplifted and happy, like happiness quotients and how that is measured. Um, so it's all very real. Like I, everything that I provide is an example of hope or relationships that work, um, that, uh, you know, interpersonal connections that are, are bonding well, that are sustainable. Um, they're all grounded in reality. They're all, there's evidence all over the place for that. So I think in my stories, my novels anyway, that's uh, what I really hope people take away is, is not like, oh, that's so bleak. I would never want to live there. Well, sometimes you don't get a choice when you're born, where you're born, um, you know, and it's our job instead to, well, not job, you can do what you want, but I think it can be helpful that to understand that, you know, you get one shot, you might as well, you might as well see how making it the best it can be. You might as well pursue relentlessly happiness, pursue survival, pursue uh, thriving um, to the best of your extent. Cause uh, uh, the resources are out there. You just gotta take them. You gotta look for it. And sometimes it's hard. And uh, I mean, obviously this book is very challenging for these characters and it's not always gonna work out for everybody and mistakes are gonna happen, but they keep getting up and they keep fighting and they keep pursuing. I mean, Colin is a great example of someone who does not stop and he's told to several times. And he's he just says, no, I this is what I love. I love you and I believe in you. And he goes for that. And Rose believes in Kanekia and she believes in the shroud and she's fighting for that, right? This sustainable belief and this hope and this uh, um, drive that, uh, that, you know, they're able to, to do a lot of really awful, awful things that many people before them have done again, like even though the murder act passed, right? We don't do it anymore. There's a reason for that. Um, you know, even though there's like bad scientific practices uh, with with educational systems, we don't do that anymore. We learn from that. Um, and it's easy to say we're not learning. There's lots of evidence that proves otherwise. So that's what I want to include is is a lot of evidence in my stories um, and and sort of life rafts for people that even though things seem challenging or bleak or like the end is coming, there's way too much proof that it's not to really buy into that. So that's my right. overall agenda. Yeah. <laughs> that's terrific. That's a, a very thorough look. And it, it's nice to lead out with a bright light <laughs> to, to go to, which I think is really important for us as human beings. Um, because honestly, I think through all the stuff that we do, if we didn't have hope, we would be nowhere. So. Yeah. And again, it is, it is easy to, it's easy to believe the voices that say there's no hope. It mm -hmm. is, you know, actually human beings are hardwired to believe worst case scenario because that's how we survive. Right. But, but it also can be very, um, demor smothering. Yeah. That part of us, that reptile brain that's hardwired that way, that ancient, ancient mechanism can really be our own worst enemy. Um, and we can do things out of fear or protection that aren't necessary. And I think sometimes I, I personally chalk it up to us just not having the correct amount of the correct information. You know, we are inundated and consumed and overwhelmed by negativity. And I'm not saying that that isn't, it's all real. It all exists. I'm not saying it's not a, it's not a bad thing to be honest and, and real about the world. But if your ratio is off, you know, if you're only seeing this overwhelming amount of, of skewed and bias about bad versus good, if I'm simplifying it, 
you don't remember to look for the actually far more good things out there because they actually there's the ratio is much greater to the other side. You just have to look for it and you have to actively pursue it and you have to bring those things in. Right. Like, so yeah, it is easy for us to, to obsess or to think or to dwell in the reality of our hardships because that's important, but you got to remember that it's a moment and it's brief and it isn't everything. Even if it feels like everything, even if it seems that way, even if our perception or the skew or what we're being told is overwhelmingly this, you know, we have an opportunity to provide the alternate information. We have an opportunity um, to shed light on the overwhelming amount of positive that's out there and beauty and love and uh, resilience and all those corny hallmark things that are real too <laughs> and then present those in an authentic way you know just you know it's so easy for people like I, this, I'm, I'm gonna go agenda you now I see this all the time we give so much more credence and credibility to the serious stuff and the bad stuff yeah. and the scary stuff and we don't give nearly the same amount of like weight or emphasis or importance or seriousness to the good you know there's so much power in the positive and we as a society don't give that the same amount of validity as we do the scary stuff. And it's on a system level. It's an institution level. You know, I mean, let's use social media as an example. The algorithm is biased to highlight and grow and perpetuate this sense of doom because it benefits from that. It knows how we think. It knows what our weaknesses are and it plays on that. But you know, and of course, people who are profiting from that don't give, they don't want to change it, right? No. But you can, quote unquote, fight the systems in a very, like in my book, you fight with love, you fight with joy, you fight with beauty, you, and the artists are a big part of that. Again, I know this is said a lot. Why do you think people go after artists and undermine artists? Because, because we have the capacity to highlight beauty and the good. And we're not always confused by the other things. Right. We have a gift of seeing things and love and joy clearly and replicating that. And that's a threat when it's easier to take advantage of people's weaknesses, when what we're doing is highlighting their strengths. And um, everybody has the capacity, you know, so uh, for beauty, for those sorts of strengths. And um, I think that's what I really wanted this book to show is like, yeah. Yeah, you can fight for love, fight for love. That's all. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a great, powerful note for us to uh, <laughs> to wrap things up on, I think. Um, I want to thank you both again for uh, making an appearance on the show. It's been lovely to spend time with you both again. And uh, let's do some of this stuff in the near future. That'd be Definitely. fun. Yeah. I'm excited to read your books, Aaron. I'm I got them all. No, I got two on the way. I'm excited. I'm very excited. And offer you two when yours, you're it's coming. <laughs> it's gonna it's come. Coming. I've got yours, Stephanie. I've already got yours on my Kindle, so I need to just get to it. But yeah, no, I'm I'm excited about all of this. It's just wonderful okay. to get Yeah. Yeah, it's so nice to talk this out. It's really it's great. And it's good to connect. Like Aaron, like when you did your first the first podcast, I was like, oh. I get it. I get this person. <laughs> I, I know. I feel it. <laughs> I'm feeling it. So I'm very, when offer said that you were co-hosting, I was like, Oh yeah, that's so excellent. Like I was really excited. So yeah, this has been very nice. Yeah. Thank you for setting this up offer. Like, oh, thank you my for pleasure. continuing yeah. to create this space for people to gather and to hear and to, to share this stuff. It's really, it's great.
Yeah, I, th I think it's a wonderful opportunity to, again, hear directly from authors and how we think and how we're putting stuff out into the world. And for me as a newbie writer, it's wonderful to hear perspective of what's been working for either of you as my guests um, to shed light on different processes because there's always, there's always new stuff that I'm learning and translating into the work I do. So I appreciate that very much. Thank you for your time. Um, we'll keep in touch on the socials and otherwise, and um, we'll talk soon. Awesome. Happy holidays. Thank you. Yes, <laughs> you too. Take care, Bye. guys. Bye. Once again, sadly, we seem to have come upon the end of our show today. As always, my profound thanks goes to my guest co-host, Aaron McConnell, and to our guest, Stephanie Barnfather. I am honored both by the pleasure of your company and in being able to learn so much by having you share your thoughts with me and our listeners today. I certainly love where our conversations end up taking us, and I look forward to more chats with you both in the not-too-distant future. For our listeners, of course, please remember to look for Aaron's and Stephanie's published works. You can find them on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and at many other fine retailers, both online and somewhere near you. Get yourself a copy of something from each of their marvelous book selections as soon as possible, and keep your eyes open for what's coming next from each of them. I know I will be. Music for today's episode is provided by Pixabay with guest artists Monday Hopes and their track Orange Juice on the Table, Paolo Argento and their track The Best Jazz Club in New Orleans, and Onochenko Music and their track Memories Remain. Our theme, Mr. Mischief, is by All Good Folks, provided by Upbeats. And once again, thanks to you, our listener, for spending some of your valuable time with us today. If you enjoyed this episode and the podcast in general, please do make a point of sharing it with your friends. Be sure to click the follow button and we'll see you back here at the Speakeasy again very soon. Remember, there's always a table set here just for you. Cheers. <laughs>